And then you have to make me host after you fire up the YouTube. Okay. We are getting so many copyright infringements. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea. We're getting dinged left and right by lawyers for copyright infringement. I will take responsibility for that. It's your fault. Can't be my fault. fault. Nothing's my fault. I gotta go without air conditioning. Hot time in the city. My hair plugs ain't pretty. Just quit whining and make me host. I thought I did. Hot times in the city. Oh, now you're the host. Puff. Puff, you're the host. How does that make you feel? Special. You are special. Where am I? Show is not even close to starting, okay? Show has not started yet. Hey, it's September 1st, and it's Labor Day, and I'm trying to wake up here. Show has has not started. Let me just get organized here. Hi. Ah, We have a good show today. Really good. Seriously. Welcome to the mop-up. Show hasn't started yet. I'm going to get my coffee. Thank you. Show hasn't started yet. Monday's Labor Day and we're doing a show on Labor Day. We never stop. We keep going. Welcome to the mop-up for September 1st, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 80 degrees and sunny. Well, President Biden is expected to deliver a rare primetime address this evening, warning Americans of the semi-fascist elements within the Republican Party. Let's be honest, he's going to couch it. This is a party that has been taken over by fascists. I'm talking about the Democrats. As for the Republicans, they're even worse. No, the, the, the Democrats are not fascists. The Republicans, whether you like it or not, the Republican Party has been taken over wittingly and unwittingly by crypto fascists. Now, for decades, Republicans have had no problem calling our side, the Democrats, socialists or Marxists. I wish I wish that were true. Right. And if you scratch the skin of a Democrat, you will find that there are some trace elements, some DNA of socialism, communism, Marxism in their blood. Likewise, when you scratch the skin of a Republican, you will find a fascist. This is the truth. Fascism combines nationalism with corporatism that brooks no quarter for labor unions or dissent. It promotes racial superiority while othering marginalized groups and scapegoating them. That's what Republicans do. That is their playbook. They are fascists. They have no problem calling us Marxists. But when we call them a fascist, their head spins. They get really pissed off. But that is the Republican Party. This is the party of fascists. They promote American exceptionalism. They wave the flag. And since Nixon's Southern strategy, the Republicans have been the standard bearer for white nationalism, fighting affirmative action, 
integration, rolling back voting rights for people of color, even going so far as to deny the existence of racism. They want to deny the teaching of racism in our public schools. That is who the Republican Party is. Republicans now insist, listen to what went on at Turning Points and at CPAC. Republicans insist that this is a Christian nation and that all other religions must take a back seat. Its authoritarian impulses are manifested in its blind loyalty to the police on issues of race. The Republicans scapegoat people of color by conjuring an imaginary invasion of dark-skinned immigrants marauding our southern border. Like the fascists of yore, the Republican Party celebrates might over right. It celebrates violence and intimidation because it cannot win at the polls. It is, it is anti-intellectualism. The Republican Party wages war against intellectuals. It allows for a war on truth while at the same time scapegoating the marginalized like the LGBTQ community and of course women. This is what fascists do. This is what the Republican Party does. They are anti-democratic fascists who do not believe in free and open elections. This is why Republican secretaries of state scrub the voting rolls to make it harder for people of color to vote. That is the Republican Party not the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has become the party of fascists. And President Biden today is going to touch that third rail and imply, he's not going to say what I'm telling you, but he's going to imply what is the truth, that the Republican Party has been hijacked by fascists and they hate being called fascists because people hate being called on their bullshit. They hate being called who they really are. Here is Charlie Kirk, the 29-year-old leader of Turning Points, who in the past has insisted the Constitution was written by Christians. He called George Floyd a scumbag and, like any fascist, gets his funding from oil companies and other assorted oligarchs. And he does not like being called a fascist. Here he is, as Stephen Miller listens, here he is on, on Fox News with Stephen Miller. If you remember, Stephen Miller devised the Muslim ban and the deportation of asylum seekers along the border. Here is Charlie Kirk, very upset that President Biden is implying that his side is filled with fascists. That if they're going to escalate the language, then game on. Like, OK, uh, if you're going to call us a bunch of fascists, we're not going to take that anymore. You're the fascist, Joe Biden. And there's other words we could use as well. There are other words we could use as well, but I'm a college dropout and I don't have them at my disposal. Charlie Kirk, I'm not a fascist. You're a fascist. Well, Charlie, if you weren't reading talking points provided to you by the Koch brothers, if you actually cracked a book on your own, you would discover that fascism uh, is you. 
you are a fascism. Look up fascism, Charlie. Call me a, a communist. I'm a Democrat. That is in the realm of possibility. But do not call Democrats fascists. Here is Stephen Miller, who looks like every single attendee at the Vanasee conference. They were the ones who dreamed up the final solution. Seriously, take a look at Stephen Miller. He looks like an ugly Reinhard Heydrich. And like Charlie Kirk, you do not want to call Stephen Miller a fascist because he does not like being called on his own bullshit. Never forget, when you call these people racist, when you call them fascists, they can't defend themselves. They go violent. They get angry and they use the oldest trick in the book, projection. Uh, by the way, I think Biden is absolutely right tonight. I, I understand what his speech is going to be about. He, I absolutely agree with him for calling these people what they are. He says they're semi-fascists. I say they're full-blown fascists. Speaking of full-blown fascists, here's Stephen Miller. Administration that has launched a political raid of his chief political opponent's home to seize and steal his property and his documents. So what you are seeing is a classic technique of tyrants and authoritarians where they use the methods of dictatorship while accusing their opponents of being fascist. This administration is authoritarian and repressive. This is how it works. It's the slow erosion of democracy committed by people who imperceptibly deny us of our rights. This is part of the fascist playbook. You throw back to the left and accuse them of being what you are. And uh, so I appreciate Joe Biden, who is expected tonight to spell out the choice America has in November. He will say Trump supporters do not recognize free and fair elections while openly threatening violence when they don't get their own way. That is what President Biden is expected to say. I have many quarrels with Joe Biden, but he is speaking the truth when he describes uh, the Republicans as, well, he's not speaking the truth. He's calling the MAGA semi-fascists. They are fascists by every measure. They are fascist. Sarah Palin was defeated in a special election yesterday to fill the remaining months of Republican congressman from Alaska, Don Young, who uh, died earlier this year. Don Young died earlier this year. He was a Republican. The sweet, the seat switches from red to blue, and that is sweet. Palin, who thought Africa was a continent, didn't know that England had a prime minister, thought it was run by the queen, this idiot, Sarah Palin, was defeated by Democrat Mary Piltola, who will serve out the remainder of Don Young's term until January of 2023. Palin is running for that seat again in November, she told supporters after losing. She hasn't given up the fight and has just stopped right now to, quote unquote, reload. Nice choice of words, Sarah Palin. Brilliant woman. 150,000 people in Mississippi are still without drinking water after climate catastrophe 
related flooding knocked out an aging water plant in the state's capital of Jackson earlier this week. And this is all about states' rights because this could have been prevented. But Mississippi hates the federal government, loves the 10th Amendment, even though it doesn't know what it is. Mississippi hates the federal government and it doesn't want our federal government's help. Or at least the Republicans who control Mississippi do not want the federal government's help. Mississippi, right, the old Confederacy, states' rights, it refuses still to accept Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. It refuses to take federal money out of principle, out of principle because they believe the federal government is oppressive. That's why nearly a quarter of a million people living in Mississippi lack health insurance because the Republicans there won't accept Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. Out of principle, Republicans in Mississippi would rather have a quarter of a million of its citizens die than admit that they need Obamacare. It's insanity. It really is. Now, in the past two years, Mississippi has been eligible for federal climate resilience funding from two programs, two federal government programs passed by the Biden administration. They could have gotten federal climate resilience funding that would have upgraded its water treatment plants. Plus, there is the new bipartisan infrastructure bill. Remember that? That was passed, what, in November? Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, everybody supposedly loves that because billions and billions of dollars are spent on upgrading sewage treatment plants and, and water. FEMA, however, that's the Federal Emergency Administration, they report that Mississippi still has not applied for any of that funding. There are three tranches of funding available to Mississippi. The bipartisan infrastructure bill, plus two previous bills from the Biden administration, all about all that funding would upgrade their water treatment, their water delivery systems. There is no drinking water tonight in Jackson, Mississippi, because Republicans have refused to accept federal dollars the same way 250,000 people in Mississippi don't have health insurance because Mississippi will not accept Medicaid expansion. There is no drinking water tonight in Jackson, Mississippi, because Mississippi is too proud to accept federal dollars. Mississippi is too proud. I don't know what they're proud of. You're Mississippi. Other than you're responsible for outlawing abortion, I think Dobbs, the Dobbs decision came out of Mississippi. That's your only accomplishment, Mississippi. Last year, Congress passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill that would have allocated $1 billion to Jackson, Mississippi. But to qualify for that federal money, Jackson, Mississippi must hire specialized staff members to apply for the federal money. 
Jackson, Mississippi wants that money. But the applications must meet approval from the Mississippi state government, which, controlled by Republicans, which has not authorized the hiring of any new personnel to help Jackson, Mississippi, get the federal money to upgrade its water system. Mississippi state government is run by Republicans. Remember, they don't want Medicaid expansion and they don't want infrastructure money from FEMA. People end up without drinking water because of this. Quarter of a million. How many people don't have drinking water tonight? Uh, what is it? 150,000 people in Mississippi don't have drinking water tonight because of this. This is how you end up without potable drinking water. And somehow this will all be Joe Biden's fault that there's no drinking water tonight in Jackson, Mississippi, which is primarily an African-American community. You can be sure if there was no drinking water in a white Mississippi community, Mississippi state government would somehow find a way to be more than happy to accept the federal government's largesse. Michael Jennings is a black pastor living in Alabama. And while his neighbors were away on vacation, good Christian that he is, he agreed to water their lawn. That's in Childersburg, Alabama, where white police officers saw a black man watering a lawn. That seemed suspicious. So they demanded to see some ID. Well, Pastor Michael Jennings was rightfully offended. He had merely crossed the street to water the lawn for his neighbors, and he told them that. They asked for ID. He did what you would do and I would do. He refused to show them his ID while he continued to water the lawn. So the white police officers arrested him. Here, watch. This happened back in May. The video was released this week. Again, this is Pastor Michael Jennings ended up getting charged with obstructing governmental operations, <laughs> a charge that was later dismissed in court. Hey, man, how's it going? Pretty good. What you doing here, man? Water plant. Are they saying that? Is that your vehicle? It's not? The neighbors? 314, I'll be on 13. Okay. You live here? No, I don't live here. Okay. Uh, they're saying that this vehicle is not supposed to be here and you're not supposed to be Who's here. Who's saying that? They called about it. I don't know who I, called. I'm supposed to be here. I'm Pastor Jennings. I live across the street. You're Pastor Jennings? Yes, I'm looking out for their house while they go. Okay. Uh, Why didn't they fly? Okay. Well, that's cool. Do you have like ID and all? I don't know, man. I'm not going to give you no ID. Why not? I ain't did nothing wrong. I ain't well, you look, suspicious. listen. Listen, I'm not saying do nothing wrong. Nah, listen, There's a suspicious I a, person. Look, I used to be a police officer in good water. Come here with that. We're just trying to talk to you, man. Come here. 313, 314, We got one that's not listening to us. Look, man, let me see your phone. Let me see your phone, dude. Just calm down, okay? No, no. Stop. I like this. They take his okay. phone. Okay. 
We're just trying to talk to you and yeah, see. I don't, don't, don't want to argue with you, okay? I don't, All right, yeah. go ahead. I'll do what I you got to do, Doc. Do, you do you what you got to do. Go on okay. and lock me up. Look, just have a seat. It's already lost, though. It's already lost. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. Just have a seat, okay? Okay. Already lost. Do you know that gentleman back Yeah. You do? Yeah. Now they're interviewing a witness. Okay, does he have permission here to be watering flowers? He may because um, they are friends. Okay. And they went out of town today. Right. He may be watering their flowers. Yeah, you think you might want to ask the neighbors first before you ask the pastor uh, or just leave them alone? Flooding continues in Sudan. The U.N. says nearly 100 have died since the rainy season began in May, and nearly 136,000 have been flooded out of their homes. Well, Italy, looks like Italy may have its first female prime minister. Isn't that great? Well, not so fast. She's a fascist. The first female prime minister of Italy is going to be a fascist. Italy's elections are September 25th. Giorgio Maloney, leader of Brothers of Italy, a right-wing party that has never renounced its fascist history, is leading in the polls. September's elections in Italy will mark the 100th anniversary of Benito Mussolini's rise to power. Maloney has refused to condemn Mussolini and instead says Italians need to examine Mussolini in the historical context of his era. Peru's socialist president, Pedro Castillo, has been in office only 13 months and so far has faced three attempts to impeach him on trumped up charges of corruption. This has crippled his presidency. Since the start of his presidency, he has been forced to appoint 67 ministers, averaging a new minister every week as he undergoes what Peru's prime minister, Annabel Torres, calls political persecution from Peru's right-wing forces. This week, President Castillo's sister-in-law, was sentenced to two and a half years behind bars. She hasn't been found guilty. She's just being detained for two years, maybe three, by a judge so Peruvian police can investigate her involvement in a criminal and money laundering scheme run by President Castillo and his wife. So they, so they say. They say he's a criminal. Castillo was born to a peasant family, became a school teacher, and then a union organizer. In Brazil, former President Lula debated right-wing President Bolsonaro on television Sunday night. Brazil's presidential election is scheduled for October. Lula served as Brazil's president from 2003 until 2010. Bolsonaro, the current president, described is described as the Trump of the tropics, and rightfully so. I think Brazil has the second highest death rate when it comes to COVID right behind the United States. During the debate, uh, Bolsonaro called Lula a thief. Lula called Bolsonaro's presidency an economic failure that has reversed many of the gains Lula made during his years in office. Lula 
left his presidency with an 83% approval rating after lifting more than 20 million people, and this is conservatively speaking, after lifting more than 20 million people out of poverty, even the World Bank celebrated Lula's economic policy, calling him a lesson to the world. Wow. Working with the central bankers, Lula was able to cut Brazil's poverty rate in half from 40 to 20 percent without creating inflation. During his two terms, Brazil's economy grew at an average of 4% a year. Despite being an avowed leftist, obviously, Lula worked within the economic system, courting bankers and businessmen. Meanwhile, The Economist, which chronicles and celebrates capitalism, calls Brazil's current president, Bolsonaro, bad for the economy and bad for the environment. Brazil's Amazon rainforests are considered the planet's lungs, and Bolsonaro has resumed burning them down to make more room for cattle farmers. Ravil Maganov is dead at the age of 67. He was the leader of Lukoil, Russia's second largest oil company. He reportedly fell from a hospital window in Moscow and was pronounced dead today, Maganov was an outspoken critic of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian leader Vladimir Putin will not attend the funeral of the Soviet Union's last leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, who died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Gorbachev is best remembered in the West for bringing about the end of the Soviet Union, which Vladimir Putin has described as, quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. In a speech 20 years ago given to the West, Gorbachev warned that if Europe and America continue to isolate Russia, to taunt Russia, then Russia will pursue illiberal policies domestically that will result in in Russia lashing out on the world stage. Truer words have never been spoken. The cost of living in Iraq is skyrocketing. Inflation is now at an annual rate of nearly 120%. That would be Mary, Mary and Liz Cheney's father's fault as well as George W. Bush's fault. America invaded Iraq in 2003 based on the lie that Iraq was responsible for the attacks on 9-11 and had weapons of mass destruction. That was a lie. In the past week, Iraq has broken into sectarian violence as its parliament still remains unable to form a new government. Last Monday, Shia leader Muqtada al-Sadr said he was getting out of politics, which prompted violence between his Shia followers and Iranian-backed Shia supporters. This intra-Shia fighting resulted in 30 dead and hundreds wounded. Supporters of Sadr stormed the parliament, but agreed to leave peacefully on Tuesday. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports this morning that two Palestinians were killed in two separate raids in the West Bank 
conducted by Israeli soldiers. A spokesman for Israel says the army was conducting raids inside a Palestinian refugee camp to confiscate money that they believe was going to be used to fund terrorist activity. So far this year, 140 Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank have been killed by Israeli forces. That's according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Meanwhile, an Israeli court ruled today that it would not release a Palestinian who has been in prison since he was 13 years old. Now 21, Ahmed Manasra is said to be suffering from severe mental illness due to his imprisonment. 13 years old. An imprisonment, by the way, that includes solitary confinement for the past 10 months. Both the European Union and the United Nations are calling for his immediate release. Ahmed Mansra, at the age of 13, was a resident of East Jerusalem when he was arrested after his cousin allegedly stabbed two Israeli settlers. Mansra was beaten by a crowd and had his skull crushed when an Israeli drove over him. While an Israeli court admitted he had not participated in the attack, the 13-year-old was charged anyway with attempted murder and sentenced to 12 years in prison under Israel's anti-terrorism law. Manasra, according to psychiatrists, suffers from schizophrenia, and we all know how much solitary confinement helps with that. 13 years old. He's been in prison since he was 13 years old. Solitary confinement the last 10 months. Unbelievable. Imran Khan was prime minister of Pakistan up until, I think it was May of this year, he was prime minister of Pakistan up until early this year. He is now being investigated on charges of promoting terrorism after delivering a speech last month supporting his former chief of staff, who was arrested for telling soldiers in a speech he delivered to disobey the current leadership's orders. Khan is under investigation, but is not in jail yet. He's out on what is called in Pakistan interim bail. Today, a judge extended his interim bail until the middle of this month as police continue their investigation into the former prime minister. These would be anti-terrorism investigations. And he is out. He's on... uh, He's on extended interim bail as to as opposed to proving President Castillo's sister-in-law, who will remain behind bars for two years, maybe three, while police try to determine whether or not she committed a crime. After nine months of delays, the U.N. Commission on Human Rights issued a report today saying that China may be committing crimes against humanity in its treatment of the Uyghur community. In its 46-page report, the UN accused China of using the threat of terrorism to justify the mass detention of nearly 2 million Uyghurs who are Muslim living inside the western province of Xinjiang. I think I pronounced that properly. 
The UN report said there are serious indications of violations of reproductive rights. They want to drive down uh, a number of Uyghurs being born. There is there are reports of coercive and discriminatory enforcement of family planning, forced sterilization, and birth control policies. The report also says there are, quote-unquote, credible reports of rape. The UN also says there is evidence of forced labor. We do not get cotton. Uh, we do not import cotton here in America from Jinyang because of that. Meanwhile, here in America... Victor Madrigal Burlows, the UN independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That's his title. He is the UN independent expert on protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. He warned on Tuesday that state Governments in the United States are eroding the rights of our LGBTQ community. After a 10-day tour of the United States, the UN expert on LGBTQ issues warned that LGBTQ people of color inside America, especially of color, faced increased inequality, discrimination, and threats of violence. The U.N. expert also warned that state governments are rolling back rights for the LGBTQ community and urged President Biden to do more to protect them. In his report, he said, quote, the evidence shows that without exception, these actions rely on prejudiced and stigmatizing views of LGBTQ persons in particular, in particular, transgender children and youth and seek to leverage their lives as props for political profit. They leverage their lives as props for political profit. We're talking about you, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, recently endorsed by the brilliant Joe Rogan. It is called the sharpest decline in a century. America's average life expectancy is at its lowest since 1996. In the past 12 months, America's average life expectancy has dropped a full year. The average American can now expect to live 76 years. As recently as 2019, Americans were expected to live on average uh, 79 years. Since 2019, uh, people of color have lost four years on their life expectancy. The average Native American and Native Alaskan now has the same exact life expectancy they had back in 1944, expected to live only until the age of 65. Our system is not working. Our system does not work. We need single payer in this country. Our system is killing us. The results are in. The launch 
of Artemis One. America's first mission to the moon in almost 50 years is now scheduled to take place on Saturday. The launch was scrubbed on Monday when NASA couldn't fix a hydrogen bleed line feeding one of the four RS-25 engines in its core stage. I think I might know what that means. I think I might know what that means. And by that, I mean I'm lying to you. I have no idea what it means. The head of McDonald's, Joe Erlinger, said yesterday that California's new fast food workers bill unfairly targets big chain restaurants like McDonald's, which is only fitting since big chain restaurants unfairly target fast food workers. 10% of McDonald's franchises are in California. I believe McDonald's started killing people in California. I think McDonald's, uh, McDonald's launched its first diabetes, cancer, morbid obesity, heart disease delivery system in Southern California. Uh, McDonald's uh, also is destroying the planet because, as I mentioned earlier, the Amazon is getting burnt to make room for cattle farmers. McDonald's is killing us uh, and its workers. It doesn't pay a livable wage to its workers. And uh, California is trying to do something about this, but McDonald's wants to stop it as does the National Restaurant Association, which has reportedly spent $140,000 to fight this California bill known as the FAST Act, which would create a 10-person council with the authority to raise wages for fast food workers and improve their working conditions. The FAST Act was passed in the California Senate. If it's signed by Governor Newsom, it would mean fast food workers would be paid $22 an hour if they work for any chain restaurant with more than 100 locations nationwide. Yes, government red tape. It's horrible. Just let McDonald's pay its workers an unlivable wage and work in unhealthy conditions. Uh, the unhealthiest thing McDonald's does for its workers is give a discount on its food to its employees. That would be the unhealthiest thing that, uh, that uh, McDonald's could do. Howard Schultz, remember him? Well, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz is a union buster. The CEO of Howard, the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, is anti-union. He is a union buster. So says Americans for Tax Fairness, which issued a new report on Wednesday saying that Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, who markets himself as a liberal, at the same time, is using underhanded and dishonest approaches to bribe and undermine union efforts at his stores. He is a union buster. Starbucks is anti-union. The report goes on to accuse Howard Schultz 
of violating American labor laws by offering 7% raises to any employees who refuse to join a union. That's union busting, and it's against the law. One of this report's most damning revelations is the median income of Starbucks workers is $12,395 a year. That is way below the poverty line. Obviously, nobody can live on $12,395 a year. And that's a 2% increase over the previous year, not coming nearly close to the inflation rate, which is pegged at around 6%. The report compares what Starbucks workers own to what uh, Howard Schultz earns. The ratio between what the CEO, Howard Schultz of Starbucks, makes and the median income of Starbucks employees, it is considered the 11th worst among the top 500 companies in America. Starbucks workers, uh, I think they're called partners, not workers. The ratio between Schultz and his quote unquote partners, his partners who earn a median of $12,395 a year, that ratio is 1,579 to one. In other words, for every dollar a Starbucks partner makes, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, makes 1,579 bucks. 1,579 to one, that's the ratio. Americans for Tax Fairness in the report says Schultz, who dipped his toe in pre- into presidential politics back in 2020, running as a liberal, they say he's worth $4 billion. $1 billion of those dollars was earned during the pandemic. And with just that $1 billion, Howard Schultz, the union buster, could pay each of his workers a bonus of nearly $4,000 each. Starbucks employees, again, are not workers. They are partners. Since the 2017 Trump era tax cuts, which the Democrats still have not reversed, Starbucks went from a 28% tax rate to an effective rate of 18%. So Starbucks is not paying its fair share of taxes. And they cost us money. When you, when you pay your employees $12,000, $13,000 a year, they have to apply for things like food stamps. He's costing us money. The National Labor Relations Board has accused Starbucks of wage theft this year after Schultz promised to only invest in stores that had promised not to go union. It's wage theft and it's against the law. Starbucks racked up 276 unfair labor practices charges this year so far after Starbucks was caught firing union organizers as well as firing 70 employees who merely expressed pro-union sentiments 
like wearing a button that celebrates unions. Fired. That's your liberal Howard Schultz, Starbucks CEO. The report from Americans for Tax Fairness offers some recommendations on how to prevent union-busting companies like Starbucks from engaging in union-busting activities. And make no mistake about this, Starbucks is actively engaging in union-busting. In a town hall meeting with his partners earlier this year, union-buster Howard Schultz called unionization, quote, an assault on his company. It's an assault. He's made it clear to investors and the employees he will crush the unions. He said during a town hall with employees, he said, I am not an anti-union person. I am pro-Starbucks, pro-partner, pro-Starbucks culture. We didn't get here by having a union. Uh, no, you got there by your having workers who you exploited. And uh, you can't be pro-partner if the median income at Starbucks is $13,000. I am not an anti-union person. It's like John Stewart telling the writers, I'm not opposed to unions in principle. It's the same refrain. I like to think that I treat you so well, you don't need unions. You don't need benefits like health care. I like to think I make you so happy that you don't care about money and being able to feed your family. CNBC which covers finance in the stock market. CNBC, of all organizations, right? This is the pro-business, pro-stock market channel. On their website, CNBC reports that Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, has been union busting as far back as 2008, where a Bush-era National Labor Relations Board said Howard Schultz violated several labor laws after he prevented Manhattan baristas from joining a union. This was George W. Bush's National Labor Relations Board. Do you realize how big a pig you have to be to, to have a Bush-era NLRB? accuse you of violating labor laws? Well, as I said earlier, the union-busting CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, and by the way, there are plenty of places to buy burnt coffee that tastes as rancid as Starbucks. I'm not calling for a boycott of Starbucks. I'm just saying you can get burnt coffee that rots your throat and causes esophageal cancer. By the way, that's the new study that's out, that, that esophageal cancer is on the rise because of hot coffee. So you can get your esophageal or esophageal. You can get your throat cancer. You don't have to get it from Starbucks. You can get it 
There are other places that serve coffee that's just as carcinogenic and burnt as Starbucks. Anyway, Howard Schultz, I mentioned Howard Schultz is a union buster. And uh, he had a town hall meeting with his partners. This is what he told his partners earlier this year. And I should also mention that he's a piece of shit. Okay, he's a piece of shit because he's all about values and community, except when it costs some money. Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, is by definition a piece of pound cake that you can buy at Starbucks. Or a piece of shit. Same thing. This is what piece of shit Howard shits. Howard, sh did I say Howard shits? I meant to say Howard piece of shits. Howard Schultz, the union buster, told his partners during a town hall meeting, and I quote, the future of Starbucks, in my view, has to be something like this. We have to reimagine, most importantly, the experience for our partners. And what does that mean? Oh, I don't know, a livable wage, being able to afford health care, uh, being able to afford to feed yourself and your family, being able to afford rent. That's not what he said. And what does that mean? He goes on, he says, it's not just wages. <laughs> of course, it's not just wages, you greedy prick. You will say anything and everything to divert your workers' attention from the one reason they're working for you, you asshole. Wages. That's all they care about. You think they like you? They think they like your values. They're there to work and they work to make money, which you do not pay them. That's why they're unionizing. And you do not recognize their unions. But the NLRB does. Therefore, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, does not recognize the United States government. Howard Schultz does not recognize the United States government. He goes on to say, and what does it mean? It's not just wages. It's the environment in our store, not the environment of our planet, which he's trashing, growing uh, coffee beans, uh, not all of which are shade grown, uh, wasting water. Uh, he says it's not just the wage, it's our sense of community, it's fulfillment. Why don't you fulfill their bank accounts? You made a billion dollars off the pandemic, you greedy union busting pig. Bad guy, Howard Schultz, delusional, mentally ill, actually thought he could be president. Remember in 2020, he ran for president, he dipped his toe into uh, presidential politics. Unfortunately, he didn't drown in it. He, he's so delusional. He's in such a vacuum that he, he actually thought the American people would be okay with his union busting. Not to mention the kids in Guatemala making something along the lines of 60 cents a day. School kids picking beans for Starbucks. 
Don't think you're going to get elected president, Howard Schultz, especially now. A new Gallup poll shows that approval ratings for labor unions, which Howard Schultz opposes. So when you when you go to Starbucks, you're 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 paying uh, a company that is in the business of union busting. And by the way, union busting is tax deductible. You could I'm not making that. Up. I'm not making that up. It is taxed. Howard Schultz can write off his union busting activities as a business expense. Bernie wants to change that. Well, the approval rating for labor unions in America, and by the way, Monday is Labor Day, and I'm not giving my audience a day off. I don't care. We're doing a show on Monday. Should I take Monday off and do what? And do what? What do I have? Approval ratings for labor unions are at their highest in nearly 60 years. Wow. America is waking up. 71% of Americans told Gallup that they approve of unions. That's the highest number since 1965. 71% of Americans say they approve of unions. That's up from, this is amazing, that's up from a 48% approval rating during the depths of the financial crisis back in 2009. Isn't that amazing? At the, at the depths of the financial crisis, only 48% of Americans approved of unions, which is why we had a financial crisis. If you approved of unions back in 2007, 2006, we would have had a bigger voice and would have uh, could have prevented uh, the kind of bailout that Barack Obama gave the banks. He bailed out the people who made the illegal loans instead of the people who lost their homes. Right. All that wealth wiped out because Barack Obama and George W. Bush bailed out the criminals who issued those illegal loans and nobody went to jail. Nobody went to jail. The only people who went to jail are all the people who got evicted and ended up living on the street. And the police did their job and figured out ways to arrest them. Uh, Gallup polled union workers asking them what they considered the best part of being members of a union. The top four answers on the board are number four, we'll count it down. Number four, better pensions for the retirement. That's the number four reason you should belong to a union. Better pensions for your retirement. You don't have to depend solely on Social Security. Number three, Security, job security. It's harder to get fired when you have a union. Number two, better employee rights on the job, like safety, right? Fewer injuries on the job if it's union. Number one, number one, better pay and better health insurance benefits. Number one, better pay and better health insurance benefits. 
when you belong to a union, you get paid more and you get better health insurance benefits. I don't mean to brag, but I am the beneficiary of a union. Don't be jealous of your neighbor because he belongs to a union and he has a boat in his driveway. Don't say, why does he get to have a boat in my driveway and I don't? Say, hey, how can I get paid the way he gets paid? You join a union. You fight for a union. And you do that through solidarity. Monday is Labor Day. Nobody is better than anybody else. Howard Schultz is not better than any of his employees. He's not smarter. He doesn't have more stamina. He's not more of a visionary. He can be replaced and he will be replaced. He's an interim CEO. He's not worth making something like 1,700 times uh, the median worker at Starbucks. Nobody is worth that. We are all the same. Solidarity. Don't compete with your team. We're all on the same team. Join a union. Now, I had lunch with Professor Harvey J.K., who is going to be on the show later on. He is the author of the book British Marxist Historians. It's, I think it's his first book, and it's being reissued in October, and we'll talk about this. He started his career studying Marxist historians, and uh, he is a broken record on this. He's been saying this since I first met him. There is no left in America. There is only labor. There is only labor. He says, if you're not talking about organizing the workplace, you're talking about nothing. All we should be talking about is organizing the workplace. Professor Harvey J.K., who will be on later tonight, says the discussion is and only is the power of labor. And after that comes more democracy. That's it. Labor unions and more democracy. Professor Harvey J.K. was in uh, New York. And on Tuesday, the two of us had a long walk along Houston Street. And on my way home, I thought about what he what he trumpets over and over again. It's repetitive. It's repetitive. Right. Uh, doctors will repeat the same admonishment, admonishment. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, admonishment. God, that's a disgusting word, isn't it? When, when Sometimes when you look at a word, it, that's an ugly word. Admonishment. It's an ugly word. Doctors repeat the same warning over and over again. Exercise. You'll live longer. You'll be happier. There is no fresh hot take on this. You have to exercise. Now, if you're publishing a magazine on health or if you're writing a medical newsletter... It's very hard to come up with a hot take, a fresh hot take on this. People need to exercise, period. So all you can do is remind people of what they already know. 
you got to exercise. Uh, you can maybe mix it up a little, tell people to go for long walks, go for a jog, run, play basketball, get your heart rate going. But in the end, it's the same message. Exercise. And when it comes to politics, the same applies. It's repetitive. It, it, people say to me, why do you repeat yourself? Because there really aren't too many new ideas under the sun. And repetition is a form of teaching. We are overloaded and distracted with all this nonsense coming over the transom that we forget to exercise. So we have to be reminded of what we already know. We, you have to exercise. There's a problem in America. We like something new, new ideas, right? Give me something other than exercise. No, there's nothing new. Exercise. The problem is people go off to college. They get their master's, PhDs. They have to justify their, their student debt by coming up with fresh hot spins. There is no hot spin on exercise unless you're pushing people to go to spin class instead of yoga. Exercise, exercise, exercise. There is no fresh hot spin on that. And there is no fresh hot spin on reducing income inequality. Labor, unions, 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 which are all about democracy, democracy, and democracy. That's it. Unions and democracy. Problem is you don't need a PhD to know that. Lech Walesa didn't have a PhD. He was, an elect he was a brilliant electrician. What's happened in America is our unions have been taken over by people with masters and law degrees, and they have to come up with something other than organize, organize, organize. And look at what that's gotten us. We need a government that protects unions, a government that protects unions, not just from big business, but from itself. Unions need to be a union needs to be protected from itself. We need a Justice Department and a Department of Labor that enforces laws and writes new laws that guarantee workers a union that represents the workers, not the professional managerial class. Other countries are able to pull this off. America can't. Other countries insist that labor leaders can only earn as much as the highest paid workers in their unions. Here in America, labor leaders are the highest paid in their union. We have to change that. And there are laws that can be written to change that. Through democracy, we can have a government that serves the interests of labor unions with the same ferocity they do big business. We need to get rid of Taft-Hartley. If you work at a company that has a union shop, then you have to pay the dues or else you're fired, right? Right. 
Those are the rules. If a corporation goes union, you have no choice. You have to pay their union dues. If you're against unions, if you're against paying union dues, then go work for a company that doesn't recognize the union that is giving you all the benefits that you refuse to pay for. Those dues pay the salaries of the people making sure the corporation doesn't screw you. That's the problem with right-to-work states. You don't have to pay dues. And that weakens unions. They don't get enough money coming in. The National Labor Relations Board is the police. And we have been defunding that police department since Ronald Reagan took office. The NLRB, they are police officers and officers and wage theft is a crime. The National Labor Relations Board is there to make sure workers don't get cheated and robbed on the job. It operates on a budget of only $274 million a year. That is obscene. You talk about defunding the police. How is the NLRB supposed to police corporations on a budget of only $274 million a year? The NLRB has not gotten a raise in nearly a decade. The defunding of this police department has resulted in massive layoffs over at the NLRB. There are 30 percent fewer employees at the NLRB today than there were a decade ago. You can't have unions in America unless the NLRB is fully staffed and fully funded, which it is not. That is why Amazon and Howard Schultz's Starbucks, that is why Amazon and Starbucks workers are voting to go union. They are voting to go union and Amazon and Howard Schultz is free to flagrantly break the law and refuse to negotiate because the NLRB doesn't have enough police officers to drag them to the bargaining table, to find them, to challenge them in court. Now, I have many problems with the Democratic Party. But back in November, Nancy Pelosi's House of Representatives passed Bernie's Build Back Better. It died in the Senate. As we all know, it got stripped down and got turned into this Inflation Reduction Act. Bernie's Build Back Better was the new New Deal. It was massive. We're talking trillions of dollars that would have been invested not just into green energy, not just into a social safety net that provided free college, universal preschool, and uh, daycare subsidies for people with children, as well as subsidies for daycare workers. All of that, plus Bernie's Build Back Better, provided for a muscular National Labor Relations Board. He was going to fund the NLRB and change the rules 
on corporations. Bernie was going to make it so that corporations would be fined $100,000 for each unfair labor practice. $100,000 per unfair labor practice. You fire Christian Smalls from Amazon because he complains that his workers don't have proper masks during COVID. Boom, $100,000. You fire one of Christian Smalls' co-workers because the co-worker got sick on the job because Amazon created conditions that made the spread of COVID easier. Boom. $100,000. You don't need to do that much. You just need a government that's responsive to the needs of the 99%. We need laws that get government off the backs of corporations and gets them right up their ass where they belong. I want government off the backs of corporations and up their asses where they belong. One out of three black men in America will be arrested. We'll go through our criminal justice system. Imagine a country where instead one out of three corporations are arrested. Imagine where one out of three CEOs have to lawyer up. Reimagine our police. Reimagine a country where Howard Schultz is fined $100,000 for every employee he fires for wanting to form a union. We can do this. We can do this. I still believe we can do this. I believe America is waking up. Two-thirds of our GDP, two-thirds are what you and I purchase. Our economy is what you and I, two-thirds of our economy is what we as consumers choose to buy. You want to buy from Starbucks? That's your choice. How you spend your money is two-thirds of our economy. One-third of our GDP is what our government spends. Get with the program, people. Those are the facts. Those are un uncomfortable facts for the ruling class. Two-thirds of our economy is what you and I buy. One-third of our economy is what the government spends. We are the economy. Not Jeff Bezos, not Howard Schultz or any other piece of shit from Seattle. Bill Gates. Uh, we are the economy. And if they don't like it, leave. Get the fuck out of my country. Go. And you want to take your ball with you? Take your ball with you. You already have. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Howard Schultz, they already left they have trillions of dollars parked overseas. The richest 1% has trillions of dollars of personal wealth parked in offshore tax havens like Delaware and South Dakota. I'm not 
making that up. I've gone over this. Delaware and South Dakota are the biggest offshore tax. They've surpassed the Cayman Islands. Biggest offshore tax havens in America are America, are American states. America is an offshore tax haven for Americans. Uh, get the fuck out of here if you don't like it and take your ball with you. Take it. Take your ingenuity. Take it with you. Get the fuck out of America, Jeff Bezos. Bill Gates. Howard Schultz. Get out of here. For decades, I've been warned that the, the ruling class is threatening to move to Galt's Gulch, where Ayn Rand's hyper-individualistic engines of industry hide from the American people, where they go on strike and refuse to participate in our economy until the oppressive American government stops persecuting these great minds, right? That's what we've been, th they've threatened to do to us. Galt's Gulch exists. And it's time for this government to tell the residents of Galt's Gulch, get the fuck out. You want to have your gulch? Go someplace else. We're shutting your gulch down. Can't have your gulch here in America. You want roads, electricity for your gulch? Pay up. You want schools? For your workers, you want clean air, clean water for your children, pay up or leave or you're going to jail. That is not communism. That is not fascism. That is America. That is community. That is not collectivism. It is democracy. It is thinking about the greater good. That's what other countries somehow are able to do. But America can't. We will be better off if these residents of Galt's Gulch take their money, their second and third wives and their idiot children and leave. Leave. All right, let's talk about inflation. Billions, and by the way, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading in the past couple of days, so uh, this is kind of important because nobody's talking about this. Uh, so pay attention to this. It's important. Uh, I think this is really important. Billions of dollars are spent every year to get think tanks and professors to convince us that the biggest driver of inflation is government spending. This is complete and utter bullshit, okay? Government spending does not create inflation. 30% of our economy is government spending. If the government doesn't spend money, the entire economy dries up. The rich and powerful are rich and powerful because they are the beneficiaries of government largesse, of that 30% of our economy. You don't get to be rich and powerful in America unless you control government spending, period. There is no free market. The stock market is propped up by government spending and by a Federal Reserve that fine tunes interest rates to make banks profitable as well as stocks and housing 
attractive investments, period. No stock market, no housing market without the government propping stocks and housing up. Period. The people who bemoan government spending have a very simple plan of attack. They're the richest 1%. They want government spending coming their way. They want their tax cuts. They want their tax subsidies. And they want business from the government. Like I said, the government is 30% of our economy. That means it pumps money into corporations. So the richest 1% spends billions hiring economists, think tanks to convince the American people that a social safety net causes inflation. That is a lie. That is a lie. They preach fiscal discipline. But they don't want fiscal discipline. They want all that money going to corporations and the richest 1%. They say we need to balance the budget. But they don't mean that. They mean they want to cut what are called entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, welfare, the VA. They want to cut that and at the same time cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy. And then they lobby lawmakers to deregulate to get the government off their back. In other words, to stop the government from making them obey the law because obeying the law costs the money and they lobby the government for contracts. Again, 30% of our economy is the federal government. So the rich are lobbying while they're telling us to get off welfare and food stamps and live within our means. They're lobbying Washington for government largesse, for government welfare. Uh, the results are in on earnings season. I had said uh, earlier, uh, about two months ago, that we will find out who's causing inflation. Is it the supply chain? Is it government spending? What's causing all this inflation? Well, The Economist has a story out. The, the results are in. The, the second quarter results are in and Wall Street, the, the Fortune 500, all these corporations are reporting record profits. And why? Why are they re recording record uh, profits? Because they have something that is called the, the power of pricing, pricing power. In other words, they have no, no competition. One third of inflation is rent. And uh, rent is caused by greedy landlords. Greedy landlords uh, who are also responsible for, for poverty. The most underreported story right now, and I read it in The Economist, uh, is that corporations are recording record profits. What the economists won't say, but what I'll tell you is, inflation is being caused by price gouging. 
uh, the Economist is reporting that corporate America posts record profits in the second quarter. And those record profits, according to the Economist, come from their ability to charge more for their products. In other words, corporate America is passing along higher costs to consumers and then some. That is price gouging. And they're able to do this, according to The Economist, which isn't saying it's price gouging. The Economist says they're able to do this because when there is less competition, customers can't pick less expensive options because there are none. What causes inflation? When corporations own the competition. In a piece entitled Vast Corporate Profits Are Delaying an American Recession, The Economist examined the results of earnings season, which just ended. There are four earnings seasons every year. Uh, every three months, corporate America reports its profits. If you remember, about two months ago, I said inflation is probably caused by some price gouging and earnings season will tell us whether or not there's price gouging. Well, there is price gouging, but nobody's telling you that. The evidence is in. According to The Economist, which doesn't say there's any price gouging going on, what The Economist is saying is that corporate America's second quarter results reveal corporate America's profits as a percentage of our GDP are the highest since the 1940s. These are record profits. Se 75% of corporations in the S&P 500 beat the estimates. And here's where price gouging comes in. For the past five years, profit margins have averaged 11%. Profit margin, it's the percentage of profits over expenses. If your profit margin is 11%, it means for every dollar that comes in after expenses, you get to keep 11 cents. Well, profit margins in the last quarter exceeded the rolling five-year average and came in at 12%. And why is that? A little something called pricing power. That's what The Economist calls it, pricing power. I call it price gouging. If your profit margin goes up 1%, that's price gouging, and that causes inflation. Because our Justice Department doesn't break up monopolies, corporate America can raise prices without losing customers. That's the other reason we have inflation. Corporation, like your cable company, can charge whatever it wants because there's no competition. All right. Uh, that's really important. I have a feeling you will uh, you will read something along these lines in the next couple of months. We will discover that uh, this this inflation is caused by two things, not government spending, not government spending. It's caused by price gouging. The evidence is in. Pricing power is a euphemism for price gouging, and it's caused because we still have a Justice Department that refuses to break up these monopolies.
Okay. We have a few minutes left, and I want to talk about uh, Dr. Bandy Lee, who uh, was fired and got some bad news this week. And it was caused by Alan Dershowitz, who bemoans the cancel culture, but has no problem getting people he disagrees with canceled. Psychiatrist Dr. Bandy Lee is not getting her teaching job at Yale back. Uh, U.S. District Judge Sarah A. Merriman dismissed a wrongful termination suit early this week, ruling that Yale University didn't violate Dr. Bandy Lee's First Amendment rights when they fired her for publicly questioning the sanity of then-President Donald Trump, as well as his attorney, Alan Dershowitz. If you remember, Dr. Bandy Lee published a book in 2017 entitled The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 other psychiatrists joined and wrote essays examining the mental health of, or lack thereof, of Donald Trump. The book declared Donald Trump a clear and present danger to America and democracy. She donated all royalties from the book to charity. In the book, Dr. Lee said psychiatrists have a professional duty to warn the American people if a president's mental illness is a national security threat. Now, the right wing is constantly warning about cancel culture on college campuses. But what happens to free and open debate if you challenge uh, somebody they like goes out the window? Alan Dershowitz wrote a book three years ago entitled Cancel Culture, The Latest Attacks on Free Speech. He's a champion of free speech unless that free speech is directed at Alan Dershowitz, in which case cancel away. Alan Dershowitz defended Donald Trump in the first impeachment trial. He was also named in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Several girls have come forward saying that Jeffrey Epstein ordered them to have sex, they were underage, with Alan Dershowitz, who, acting as Epstein's attorney, arranged a sweetheart deal with the U.S. attorney in Florida to go easy on Jeffrey Epstein back in 2008. He also arranged uh, for the uh, records to be sealed. Two of Jeffrey Epstein's rape victims testified under oath that Jeffrey Epstein ordered them to have sex with Alan Dershowitz. They were underage at the time. One of those victims is Virginia Roberts, I'm mispronouncing her last name, Geoffrey, who also accused Prince Andrew of raping her as a teenager. Prince Andrew insisted he was innocent. But earlier this year, when he was just about to be deposed by Virginia Robert Jeffrey's attorney, Prince Andrew suddenly agreed to a massive but undisclosed settlement. Millions. Prince Andrew, because of this, is no longer a working royal. He's been fired from the family. Isn't that? I'd love to fire some family members. He's done because of Virginia Roberts Geoffrey. Jelaine Maxwell is currently doing time for procuring underage girls for Jeffrey Epstein. She was also sued by Virginia Roberts Geoffrey for defamation back in 2015. 
Before heading off to prison, Jelaine Maxwell settled the case with Virginia Roberts Gioffre by paying her millions of dollars. So Jelaine Maxwell settled with her, paid her millions. Prince Andrew settled with her, paid her millions. Why would she lie about being forced to have sex with Alan Dershowitz? Is she bragging? Is she lying just to impress her friends because Alan Dershowitz is such a hunk? Is that what women do? They lie about having sex with People Magazine's most beautiful publicity-hungry trial lawyer, seven years running, Alan Dershowitz? Alan the Bod Dershowitz? Maybe. Maybe she's lying because every woman wants to claim they had sex with Alan Dershowitz. Or maybe she was telling the truth about Alan Dershowitz the same way she was telling the truth about Jelaine Maxwell and Princess Andrew, and that's why both of them paid her money. Or maybe she just wanted to have sex with Alan Dershowitz so badly that she fantasized about a shirtless Dershowitz carrying her off on a white steed into the mountain and then laying her down on a bed of roses and making sweet, sweet Dershowitz love to her. I mean, we all have that fantasy. I mean, who hasn't fantasized about Alan Dershowitz making love to us? I can't tell you the number of times I've woken from a dream, the sheets soaking in my fluids, only to be disappointed that it was just a dream. Alan Dershowitz wasn't lying next to me, sleeping soundly like a post-coital Sonny Von Bulow right before they changed her feeding tubes. I guess she just fantasized about having sex with Alan Dershowitz, who has not settled with her. She is suing Dershowitz for defamation Alan sued her for defamation, and the trials keep going on and on and on. When it was revealed that Epstein may or may not have arranged for a massage from an underage woman for Alan Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz volunteered on national television that he, quote, had a perfect, perfect sex life. And that prompted Dr. Bandy Lee, psychiatrist, in a tweet to compare Alan Dershowitz's choice of words to Donald Trump's choices of words. If you recall, during the first impeachment in which Alan Dershowitz defended Donald Trump, Trump described his phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, in which Trump said he would withhold congressionally authorized military aid unless Zelensky delivered dirt on Hunter Biden. Trump described that as, quote, unquote, a perfect phone call. The call was perfect. Alan Dershowitz, defending himself against allegations of raping an underage girl, described his sex life with his wife as perfect. Somebody should check with his wife to see if that sex life is perfect. Dr. Banty Lee tweeted that perhaps, and this is what got her fired, that perhaps Alan Dershowitz possessed a shared psychosis with Donald Trump. Here is the tweet that got Dr. Banty Lee fired by champion of the First Amendment, Alan Dershowitz, who is bemoaning, who wrote a book about cancel culture. This is the tweet that Dr. Bandy Lee 
wrote, Alan Dershowitz's employing the odd use of perfect, not even a synonym, might be dismissed as ordinary influence in most contexts. However, given the severity and spread of quote-unquote shared psychosis among just about all of Donald Trump's followers, a different scenario is more likely. Richard W. Painter uh, immediately tweeted back just like Trump's uh, perfect phone call. Uh, a shared psychosis among Trump followers, a madness, if you will. Charles McKay was a 19th century author who wrote Extraordinary Popular Delusions of the Men and the Madness of Crowds. In this seminal work, he describes national manias, the contagion of dangerous ideas like the Crusades, the witch trials, which got people killed, or economic mania, a group psychology that convinced people to invest in tulips. In her book, Dr. Bandy Lee warns that one man's mania can infect enough people to drive an entire society insane. We saw that in Nazi Germany, and we're seeing that with the 75 million people who still want to vote for Donald Trump. In her tweet, she suggested that perhaps Dr. that Donald Trump's illness is contagious. Alan Dershowitz didn't appreciate that. Here's a picture of Alan Dershowitz going on national television two weeks ago, missing his front teeth. Again, not making fun of anyone who can't afford to get their teeth worked on. But Alan Dershowitz is doing a remote from his multi-million dollar home on Martha's Vineyard. He can afford a front tooth. I'll keep this picture of a toothless Alan Dershowitz up while I continue this is Alan Dershowitz, who wrote to Yale back in 2020, complaining that Dr. Lee publicly diagnosed him as a psychotic based only on his political and legal views. She didn't diagnose him. She wrote a tweet suggesting that there might be some shared psychosis in his choice of words with Donald Trump's choice of words. But cancel culture decrier Alan Dershowitz wrote a letter complaining to the chairman of Yale's psychiatry department and falsely accused Dr. Bandy Lee of diagnosing him on Twitter. I showed you that tweet. That was not a diagnosis or an observation from an accomplished psychiatrist. She was merely warning in her book against a mass psychosis. She was merely suggesting that perhaps Alan Dershowitz, like much of our country, was catching what Trump suffered from. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not forbidden by the Goldwater rule, uh, which I think is bullshit. Do you think it's normal for Alan Dershowitz to go on national television Missing his front tooth? I don't think that's normal. I don't think that's normal. Uh, Dr. Bandy Lee is now out of a job at Yale because Alan Dershowitz, who has written books bemoaning the cancel culture, didn't like her tweet and got her fired.
he, like everyone who bemoans the woke culture, the cancel culture, is completely full of shit. They do not believe in the First Amendment. They only believe in protecting the speech that they want to hear. Yale should give Dr. Bandy Lee her job back. Donald Trump is creating a mass psychosis in America. And Dr. Bandy Lee was brave enough to say that. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours and hours this Friday night. It's the first Friday of the month, and that means it's office hours and hours. 24 hours of office hours meet better people like our next guest, who is a columnist for The Daily Beast. He is a columnist for Jacobin. He teaches at Morehouse. He's the host of Give Them an Argument. His book is called Give Them an Argument. Professor Ben Burgess, are you there? I am, yeah. My video is not working for some reason, but I am here. Why isn't you? Why isn't no you? clue. Um, professor, your uh, name has disappeared, which often, often indicates that maybe you've covered your camera. Uh, nope. Okay. <laughs> I have not. Uh, I right. can see the camera, but I don't know what's going on there. Okay. But it's one of those. Hopefully we will be able to get. Let me just so I can focus. Dan, can you turn your camera on? I just want to make sure this is not a systemic. Pro there you go. Okay. It's not a systemic problem. It's Professor Ben Burgess. Hello, Professor Ben Burgess. <laughs> Hello, comedian David Feldman. You are an incredibly prolific writer. I don't know how you do it. You you have you're writing books, you're teaching, delivering lectures, and you're writing for the Daily Beast, The Nation, and and Jacobin. What is your latest piece? Um, so I had two come out today, just the way the scheduling worked. Uh, there's one about Ben Shapiro in uh, in the Daily Beast, uh, but I think the one that would actually be more interesting to talk about because. Um, it's about somebody you and I haven't particularly talked about before is the one in, um, God, are we going to talk about God? Yeah. About God. Uh, oh, well really about Jesus who is God, but yes. is also the son of God. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've accepted him into your heart yet or what the uh, situation is there, but I'm hoping I can work on that. But yeah, uh, no. So if uh, he masturbates, close. wait a second, if he's the son of God as well, when he masturbates, he's having sex with his father. That's sick. Yeah, that, that's correct. Well, okay. it would be sick, but uh, there are different rules for gods. Ah, I see. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, no. Uh, very close, not God, but uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, who uh, recently, you know, the, you know, somebody, David French, who's actually also a conservative, uh, referred, I think, very aptly to DeSantis as the most online governor in America, Meaning that, like every time um, there's uh, like the online right is like worked up about something, you know, he's like immediately on the scene with uh, with some kind of big gesture to pander to them. Uh, so, you know, the week that everybody was upset about the the possibility of children being taken to drag shows, even though nobody had any data whatsoever right. on the uh, you know regularity of that occurrence. Uh, 
you know, he was getting himself into the headlines saying that he was, you know, pondering, directing the uh, Florida Child Protective Services to do something about that. Uh, this is a governor who once actually uh, created a bill that had to do with critical race theory and other things that he called the Stop Woke Act. That was the real official mm-hmm. uh, title of the bill, right? Uh, so very much in keeping with that, you know, back in April, his way of pandering to the Republican base uh, in on election fraud, right? Because everybody had convinced themselves of that, you know, in uh, the aftermath of the 2020 election, was to create this special like state of Florida election police uh, that was uh, allegedly cracked down on, I think they said, um, fraud and other election crimes. Uh, and then a little while ago, uh, they, they actually did 20 arrests. Uh, and uh, the, uh, these arrests, um, like which in at least one case where the guy's lawyer uh, talked to the media, the defendant himself is anonymous, but this guy was actually um, like dragged out of like he was taken from bed. Right. He was in his underwear at six in the morning uh, by a SWAT team that helicopter. Uh, they did not let him get dressed before they took him to jail. Wow. Uh, and um, neither he nor the other 19 defendants are actually accused of fraud. They're all real people who voted under their own names. They only voted once. Uh, but their crime is that they voted at all because they uh, they're not eligible to vote under Florida law because of past felonies. And um, and they, I think actually most or all of them probably believed that they were eligible to vote because the laws in Florida are very confusing on this point. Uh, they in 2018, Florida voters passed a ballot measure, Amendment 4, which was supposed to restore voting rights to felons. Yes. Uh, but then. Pretty much immediately afterwards, the Republican state legislature um, went in and they didn't directly overturn what the voters had just passed, but they passed something that fees, uh, right? You had to pay fees to get. Exactly. They they passed something that that blocked out most of the effects of what the voters had passed because said, okay, yeah, you can vote again, but uh, only once you've paid any fines or fees associated with your crimes. And also, we're not going to make it very easy for you to find out what you owe. Right. Uh, So good luck with that. Um, Slow down for one second, because this is really amazing. Yeah. This is so anti-democratic because the people of Florida said, if you, they voted, they said, yes, if you did time and you're no longer behind bars, you should be allowed to vote. And let's be honest. The the Republicans in Florida do not want ex-felons to vote because ex-felons got arrested because they were poor and uh, tend to be people of color. Right. Yeah. I mean, like it's not it's not very, uh, very hard to figure out the uh, like Republicans don't want um, felons to vote because. Uh, because they, you know, tend to fall into demographic groups they don't think are going to vote for them, right? right? I mean, that's the that's it. Um, and um, and yeah, so the combination of the and the original law. And by the way, I mean, I should say I think there's a much larger point here, but like just you know, before we get to that, just in terms of Florida, right? Uh, 
So the voters passed Amendment 4, which said, yeah, we want we want felons to be able to vote again. The state legislature said, eh, not so fast. Let's make it at least very difficult for this law to go into effect in any individual case because we're going to it's not going to be automatic like what the voters wanted. Uh, it's you know, there's going to be this financial element. Uh, it's um, uh, it's going to uh, it's going to be really difficult to figure out and navigate this process to get your voting rights back. Uh, and also add on top of that, you, you know, like a, there's no centralized database to figure out what you owe. And added on top of that, there were exemptions built into the original law. So it doesn't necessarily get you know, there are certain crimes that um, that the reenfranchisement never applied to. So it's a confusing, weird mess. And so it's very easy to see how somebody who'd served their time, who maybe even kind of followed the news, could think that they were eligible to vote, but not be eligible to vote. It's very easy to see right. how some well-meaning volunteer standing in a Walmart parking lot helping to register people to vote could talk to somebody and say, hey, are you registered? This is somebody got- who got a voter registration card sent to them, right? Yeah. So, the, yeah, this person in Miami Day, the guy was in his underwear when they took him to jail, um, like he was he was at a Walmart. There was a there were people who were like signing up voters you know, he told them, no, I can't. Right. Cause, cause I had, you know, cause my convictions and they said, um, no, it's okay. Cause of amendment four. Right. I mean, this is not, you know, the, the volunteer, you know, talk to him at Walmart was presumably acted in good faith. I mean, like they understandably thought, you know, that, uh, that they, that he would be able to vote. Cause it's a, it's a weird, confusing hodgepodge of laws. He said, okay, he filled it out. And then, and this is true for all tw- all 20 of them, right? All 20 of these people were told by prison officials that they could vote. Yeah. Prison officials told them they could vote. They, the prison officials said, um, like, wait, Amendment 4 passed. They were like, hey, guys, just so you know, when you get out, you'll be able to vote again. Uh, again, the, the volunteer registered him, told him he could vote. This this guy in Miami-Dade. He, uh, and then, like, in all 20 cases... When they filled out their paperwork, right, they did they registered to vote, it was processed and it was approved. They got cards really? in the mail. Really? Yeah. They got they got voter registration cards, but the uh DeSantis uh the election cops argument is well they're still um they're still violating, you know, because because they're they're not eligible to vote. So even though they're mistakenly issued. But this is uh, the supervisor of elections sending these cards out to them. If I get a voter card from these the the Orange County Supervisor of Elections, I'm good to go unless yeah, I'm black. It, he, I would assume this guy was black, right? Well, we don't know who he is. You know, His I name mean, is we, Peter Washington, as I understand it. OK, the article I read, he was anonymous. So we might be talking about different guys, but they have a um, the the lawyer was the one who in the article that I was looking at was uh, was was speaking to the press. Uh, and for obvious reasons, at least as of that point, uh, you know, he did uh, he didn't want to uh, disclose his client's identity. But uh, but yeah, um, that's like I would, you know, maybe, maybe not. Right. I mean, like, obviously, the prison population of the United States is disproportionately black because poverty in the United States is disproportionately black. Right. So there's a very good chance, although he might be white, you know, he might be Hispanic, you know, he's in Florida, he's in Miami-Dade. Right. You know, those that would make sense. But regardless, um, now, the latest development is it turned out the person who actually, like, signed off on a lot of these people, right, to say, 
uh, I've looked at your registrations. You're fine. You can vote, right? Then apparently, the person who's ultimately responsible for supervising this was actually a DeSantis employee really? who's now, you know, who DeSantis appointee, right? Who's now involved in the crackdown. So, in light of that, especially, I think, um, like the latest reporting that, like I saw, that inspired me to write this piece for Jacobin. Uh, I think that like there's a very good chance these people are going to get off, right? The the case is kind of collapsing against them, especially because if you look at the wording of the law that they're supposed to violate it, it says that you have to knowingly, right, be be uh, voted even though you're not eligible. And I think they have a real good case to make that they didn't know. But I think the larger point that I try to make at the end of the article is okay, but like take a long step back from from this, right? I mean, like this. This particular grotesque spectacle that played out in, in, in Florida, which is really like just this, um, just just uh, infuriating, right? Like like uh, spectacle that happened, you know, because this election police force that DeSantis only ever formed in the first place uh, to uh, to 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 further burnish his credentials as uh, as the the most. Um, you know, like the most aggressive uh, base pleasing candidate in the 2024 Republican primaries. But, um, and, you know, and I'm sure they only did this like big sweep of these people, you know, to keep it in the headlines. Uh, so obviously that's particularly infuriating. But I mean, I think there's a larger point here, which is worth like keeping our eye on, which is like aside from the sort of immediate headlines about DeSantis and uh, why he's doing this, like, why should anybody lose their right to vote um, because of a felony? In fact, why should anybody lose their right to vote under any circumstances? Uh, there's a uh, if if these 20 people had committed their you know whatever crimes they committed. Let's say they're all guilty. Maybe maybe not. Who knows, right? Um, but let's say that all 20 of these people had committed their felonies in Maine or Vermont or Canada or Israel or 18 other countries. Uh, they would have, they would have been able to cast ballots from prison, right? And in, uh, in, in Maine and Vermont, uh, you could uh, you could vote from from prison, right? Again, in Canada, you could vote from prison. There are like uh, you know, I believe nineteen or twenty countries, right? You can you can vote from uh, candidates. From, a lot of candidates in foreign countries campaign inside prisons. Yeah, and uh, in America, nothing. we should have them campaign in prisons and stay there. <laughs> yeah, Except exactly. But they haven't. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing. Nothing bad has happened in Maine or Vermont or any of these foreign countries as a result of this. Nothing like politically unusual has even happened, right? I mean, like, yeah, Vermont elected Bernie, but they also elected an awful lot of Republicans. You know, it's not. Right. Uh, it doesn't actually. You know, for better or for worse, it doesn't seem to have a big effect. Um, if you're worried uh, that you're uh, that if if uh, if prisoners are voting, uh, then uh, then I would suggest that. Um, if you're worried that the uh, that the incarcerated voting block is going to swing elections, I would suggest that your society is incarcerating too many people. Um, but uh, but here's would, something else that maybe you yeah. should uh, a suggestion for a column in the future. Uh, yeah. There are something like 750,000 Americans in jail, not prison, in jail awaiting trial. 700,000. Now, if you're awaiting trial, you're entitled to vote. And if you're doing time for a misdemeanor, you're entitled to vote. We have disenfranchised 
Uh, I would say, and I don't know, I'm going to guess, I don't know the exact number. If we have two and a half million Americans behind bars. Uh-huh. And most states don't allow you to vote and if you are serving time for a felony. You're allowed to vote for a misdemeanor. Yeah. Uh, how many of what percentage of that 2.5 million behind bars is awaiting trial or doing time for a misdemeanor? Because I can assure you they're not getting uh, due process under the 14th Amendment. It, it's, it's hard to vote there. I understand some jails do set up voting booths, but nobody's campaigning to them. These are people awaiting trial. They should they should be they're entitled to hear the candidates, be spoken to, campaign to. This is a a, a constitutional affront that nobody's talking about. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think that um, like there is a really basic principle here. I, I wrote about this uh, way back in um, like November 2020, just before the election. Uh, I, I wrote a column for uh, Jacobin that was just called Let Everybody Vote. And the point of that column right. was. I remember that. Um, was, to, you know, I, I sort of went through and did some back of the napkin math. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I mean, like I added up all the people uh, who are adults in the United States who, for one reason or another, are not eligible to vote. And, you know, it, it you know, seems to me that like the most basic democratic principle that you could have is that anybody who lives in an area and has to follow the laws of that area, right? They have to spend their, their whole lives, you know, following following the laws of uh, that have been set by elected officials in that area should be able to vote those people out of office. Right. right? I mean, should, should, should have a say in deciding, you know, who makes those laws. And so, you know, my position on this is that, you know, I think um, like, I think prisoners for sure, uh, you know, obviously people, you know, people in holding in jail, uh, obviously people who, um, uh, like, I think like immigrants who just showed up, uh, under whatever circumstances, uh, I think, I think foreign students who are, you know, who, uh, who, who are like attending classes, you know, who are like going to college in the United States. If you're going, if you live in a place, right, you have to follow the laws of, uh, of that place. Uh, I've never seen a convincing argument that, you know, you shouldn't have, uh, a basic right to have your say in deciding who makes the laws in those places. And I don't see any reason why it should be any harder to uh, gain voting rights once you move to a jurisdiction than it is to get a library card Right. once you move to that jurisdiction. Right? I, you know, like, I may, you know, there are a lot of things, I'm older than you, so it's hard for me to wrap my head around certain things. I'm, for, politically speaking, I don't know if that's a net positive. I don't think you're going to get, you're going to win elections by saying that. Sure. But they are doing this in New York City. You don't have to be an American citizen to vote in New York City elections. And I think that's a good thing. So. Mm -hmm. um, no, no, I, I think so too. I mean, and, and look, I mean, if the question is like, is that what you, uh, um, 
you know, I mean, is that what you, uh, you put front and center on your campaign website in most places? I'm sure the answer is no. Right. You know, but like, I also think it's worth figuring out, um, you know, look, I support lots of things that I don't think there's like a political coalition to make happen tomorrow. Right. Like, like I, I think that, I think that's fine. Right. I mean, I, and that, you know, that I don't think that like are going to get majority support in the polls tomorrow. Right. You know, I mean, I don't, um, I am under no illusions that, uh, that, you know, that we could have, um, that you could have a, uh, um, that like, you know, workers control the means of production is going to, is going to win an election in the United States tomorrow. Right. But I think it's important to know what the long-term horizons are of what you think justice would be. Uh, not because like, then like you'll insist that it happened, you know, the next minute or it's like horrible if it doesn't or anything like that. Right. You know, like, I think you could be realistic about what you could achieve when, but I think that like, I think you need that North star, right. To sort of like guide at least like, okay, what should we want to happen? Like, what do we, um, what counts as progress in the right direction, right? What counts as going in the wrong direction? Like if nothing else, I think you need to know what you want uh, for, yeah, the sake of that. I think, I think that like saying like, look, ideally if I just got to pick who would, who would be able to vote? Absolutely. Goddamn everybody who has a residence in an area. Now, right. do I think that like, do I think that that's like a politically viable thing this week? No, I don't. But I think understanding that helps orient me towards like how I feel about things that may be politically possible in the near future. We have uh, we're running 10 minutes behind. I want to alert our affiliates. We're running 10 minutes behind. So I only have 10 more minutes with you if you can spare it. And I want to ask you about the other piece you wrote in Jacobin. Hypocritical conservatives loved PPP paycheck protection uh, program loan forgiveness, but hate student loan forgiveness and loan forgiveness for me, but not for thee. You have a tweet in your piece over Jacobin from Ben Shapiro. This is one of the most infuriating stories that I've read about Republicans who oppose Biden forgiving 10000 maybe $20,000 in student loans, but they themselves had their loans forgiven. Yeah. Tell me about Ben Shapiro. Yeah. So um, now Ben Shapiro, I should say, is not one of these people. Initially, people suspected that he might be uh, because there's somebody else with the same name, you know, who had a a PPP loan forgiven. But he certainly defended all the right wing politicians who did have PPP loans forgiven. Right. Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, uh, who had, I believe, 183,000 in PPP loans forgiven. There are other Republicans in Congress who've denounced student debt forgiveness who've had a million, 1.4 million in, uh, in PPP loans wiped clean. Um, Matt Gates had a big PPP loan, uh, wiped clean. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, pretty much immediately in a, uh, in a rare fit of, uh, political competence, the white house Twitter account had some fun with this. Uh, it was pretty amazing what they did. This, this juxtaposition, right. You know, they said, okay, what, Come on, guys. Right. They just did quote tweets of all these congressmen denouncing student debt forgiveness and said how how big their PPP loans that were that were forgiven. And I think this has really put the right on its back foot. Right. They really don't know how to respond to this. Uh, and because, I mean, on the face of it, it looks pretty bad for them. Right. So they, they've come up with all of the, you know, 
And especially because, yeah, like you have Ben Shapiro. I think this is the tweet you're talking about. He said, you know, healthy societies are ones that make people pay back their debts. Uh, Amazing that it's become controversial to say this, which, by the way, uh, I would suggest that sometime in the future, uh, Ben Shapiro, who who I believe is a very religious person, read the book of Leviticus and, uh, and, and, uh, and I think he'd be surprised what he would read there as far as society's deaths, uh, go and Jubilee. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, um, but also immediately people brought up all of these, you know, conservatives who'd had their PPP loans forgiven and his line and the line of other conservatives about this was no, 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 no. That's completely different. You know, you can't compare, uh, you can't compare that, uh, to um, to student loans because uh, because people chose to take out student loans, uh, but this is different, right? You know, because because the government made people shut down during COVID. You know, so it's like the least they can do. And I make a couple points about this. Right? One of them is that um, there's like first of all, all of these people damn well did choose. Uh, to apply for, P- you know, it's not like PPP loans were legally mandatory, right? You had to apply for them. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, okay, but if they hadn't applied for them, maybe they would have gone under during mm-hmm. uh, during the worst of COVID. And in some cases, I think that's true. Uh, I think a lot of cases is probably not true, but in some cases it's true. Um, there was a study that estimated that between 23 and 34% of uh, PPP loans a little bit, you know, between of the money, the overall amount of money, right? You know, went directly towards uh, workers who would otherwise lose their job. It's hard to measure exactly, but that was their estimate of the range. A lot of it went to creditors and suppliers. A lot of it was just pocketed by business owners and shareholders. Uh, but so, you know, that's one thing. But even putting that aside, right? Let's assume for the sake of argument, the PPP was a perfect program and that was exactly the best way to protect people's jobs during COVID. And et cetera, et cetera, right? And also, let's ignore the fact that when people say, oh, well, they made us shut down, so it's the least they could do, uh, the entity that was um, issuing the shelter-in-place orders, that was like state and local governments. That wasn't the federal government that was doing the PPP. It's a different entity, which is might sound nitpicky, but I think maybe isn't, because also uh, keep in mind that some of these people, like you know Marjorie Taylor Greene with her $183,000 in PPP loans, like me, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, is in Georgia, where, as I recall, we had shelter in place orders for about 10 minutes uh, mm-hmm. before before Brian Kemp lifted those. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually skeptical about how much she needed them, but maybe she did. Uh, that's not the main point, right? Here's the main point. That when they say this, right, well, look, um, yeah, look, that might be true in uh, in some cases, certainly not all cases, but some cases, that they wouldn't be able to, uh, uh, that their businesses, you know, wouldn't have wouldn't have survived if they hadn't, you know, they hadn't taken a loan. Okay, but one, how is your? Oh, I'm not going to be able to maintain myself in this business. How is that different from somebody who has any number of careers that you can't get without going to college? And by the way. Uh, we have this discussion sometimes in these terms that are as if like the only people uh, who are, you know, we're talking about are like Harvard educated 
uh, lawyers who work at white shoe law firms and have tons of money to pay off their student loans, right? I mean, like, you know, just to put this into perspective, I mean, um, 18% of, of nurses have na- have master's degrees, right? You know, and a majority of public school teachers have master's degrees, right? Lots of people were in school for lots of years and had to be for their jobs um, and, um, and, and are are strapped for cash, right? That's a very common situation. That doesn't mean you majored in whatever stupid ass thing they always say when they're making fun of it, the, you know, Marxist basket basket weaving. Yeah. Basket weaving or whatever. Right. Lots of people who had practical, uh, career oriented, not that I think you should have to, honestly, I actually think it's good to have a broad liberal education, but lots of people who, you know, had career oriented, uh, degrees and got jobs in those careers, things that we need people to do, uh, have lots of trouble paying off their student loans because they don't make very much money in those jobs. But, um, but, you know, but, but here's what it really gets down to. Okay, fine. Um, you think it was a good program and you think maybe even because the government made you shut down, whatever, even, you know, accepted all the ways that that's an exaggeration that you should have just gotten the money outright instead of getting the loan. So therefore you think it was fine to build in mechanisms to forgive the loan. Okay, but what principle are you are you appealing to here, right? Like, the principle you're appealing to, in effect, when you say this, is that if you should, if the government should have assisted you outright instead of giving you a loan, then it's fine to forgive the loan. Okay, I agree, right? And here's the, you know, but. People who support student loans, certainly people who are like social Democrats and democratic socialists who support uh, forgiving student loans, think that the government should have just paid for people's college outright and it should never have been a loan. You should never have had to get a loan, right? Because the government should have just provided that assistance outright. So we agree on the principle that if the government should have just provided some assistance outright instead of making you get a loan, then it's fine to forgive the loan. What we're disagreeing about is what assistance should have been provided outright. And so what we're really disagreeing about, right? Sure, we might agree that like you shouldn't lose your job because of COVID. Great. We could argue about whether PPP was the best way to do that, but put that aside, right? We agree that you shouldn't have lost your job because of COVID. But what we're disagreeing about is whether you should be able to become a, um, a teacher or a nurse or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if you can't afford to go to college. Right. Right. What we're disagreeing about is whether higher education is something that people that you should have. You should be able to pursue those paths in life. Everybody should. Right. Just just for being a person. Right. You know that you shouldn't have to come from a family where it's not a financial issue. You shouldn't have to have figured, you know, have the most amazing scholarships ever. So it's not a financial issue. Right. That everybody should. And so if we're going to have an honest disagreement about this. Right. It's. The disagreement would be about should everybody get to go to college? Do we want to have the kind of society where everybody can go to college? That would be what the honest disagreement would be about. But conservatives don't want to have that disagreement because they're going to look bad. So instead, they're just you know changing the subject to all of this like silly bullshit about like oh you know it's a historical generalization at <laughs> all times and all places that. Uh, you know, that you, that like, you know, societies that, you know, forgive people's loans are bad, except, except ancient Israel. So, you know, it's ridiculous. Yes. 
I, I apologize. Uh, the the Hirschman cells. Ancient Israel. We're here. <laughs> they're here. They they're just too adorable. Uh, Professor Ben Burgess teaches philosophy at Morehouse College, and he is the host of Give Them an Argument and countless books, as well as Give Them an Argument, which is the name of his podcast as well. Read them over at Jacobin, The Nation, and and Daily Beast. When's your next book coming out? David, I believe you can count to four. Uh, that's, that's the number. It's not countless. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Give them an argument. Uh, the, hang on. Uh, the, 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 can, can, Canceling can, Comedians can, While the World Burns. And then there's an academic book that nobody reads. So that's fine. Uh, yeah. So, um, so there's, um, yeah, so the next book, I don't know, a year, two years, it's still very much in progress. So that's the one that's, uh, it's going to be called The Blueprint. Uh, it's from uh, Verso. It's co-written, co-written with Bhaskar Sankar and Mike Beggs uh, about what a sort of fully democratic social society might look like. Uh, but I don't expect to finish that book anytime soon. But. I have an idea for a column for you. Uh, All right, I'll let's send, do it. It's about uh, inflation being caused by price gouging. Nobody, yeah. th- nobody is saying it, but the results are in for uh, second quarter. And well, you you saw that uh, that that John Fetterman um, wrote an editorial where he called for um, he like listed a bunch of specific companies and called for uh, prosecutions for uh, for price gouging. So um, I'm going to send you. I, we have to wrap it up. I'm going to send you an article I read about the second quarter results for the Fortune 500. All of them are recording record profits. And in their earnings calls, all they're willing to admit is they have pricing power now. <laughs> I'm going to send you the article. The awesome. evi- It's price gouging, pure and sim- simple, but nobody's willing to talk about it. So thank you, Ben Burgess. Thank you. Com- uh, thank you, Professor. All right. Thank you, prof- comedian. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let us go to Kate. It's an adorable tableau that I'm looking at right now. It is Dr. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Freudian psychoanalyst and the author of Today is Now, comedian Ethan Hershenfeld. Are you all together in in uh, Cape Cod? Yeah. We're on different different continents, actually. <laughs> it's trick photography. Yes. You both of you, you, you look very happy. We are. Who could be unhappy here in Cape Cod? Invite um, me. I'll show you. On, you want to see unhappiness? Bring me up to, to Cape Cod. I'll ruin it for you in an hour. Is it? How long could... Go ahead, Ethan. I'm sorry. They were happy also to be on your show. It's always a pleasure. It's a highlight of the week. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Thank you. And it's a highlight of my week seeing okay. that you good. We're done. What was your question? Uh, well, first of all, today is now written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. That's the first. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody should go buy it. It has the Feldman guarantee. If this book doesn't make you happy and make you laugh, I will reimburse you. Go buy Today is Now. By Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Please, I really appreciate it. Please do buy it. And please buy the hard 
copy instead of the paperback, not only because that makes me twice as much money, but primarily for that reason. <laughs> primarily. No, no, no. no the, pa- the pagination is preferable. The way it's laid out in the hardcover is really, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot better. No, get what, get, you know, whatever you like. So Dr. Bandy Lee lost her job. She was the psychiatrist. She taught at Yale University. She wrote a book diagnosing, along with 27 other mental health experts, diagnosing uh, Donald Trump's mental illness. And she issued a tweet directed at Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz didn't like the tweet. He wrote to his alma mater, Yale, and uh, it resulted in Dr. Bandy Lee getting fired. And she took Yale to court. This week, a judge ruled that it wasn't wrongful termination. It didn't violate her First Amendment rights and that the Yale Psychiatry Department has every right to rein in Dr. Bandy Lee's uh, writings or statements about Donald Trump. So I don't want to get anybody into trouble. But Especially you. Right. Uh the gold rule, the gold, what is the gold water rule? If you're, if you're at a restaurant and they bring you, uh, no, no, go on. Let's find <laughs> <like a, laughs> Go ahead. You know, I don't want to go down. That. I like, I like his answer better. I mean, I, um, I, I don't want to get anybody in, you know, I don't want to. Is I this, think. You, you can't bet money on this, but I think the Goldwater rule is that it is unethical for a mental health professional to diagnose anybody that you have not met with in person in a clinical setting. Okay. So that flows from about 1,200 psychiatrists in 1964 publishing a pamphlet saying that Barry Goldwater, the Republican nominee for president, lacked the mental health to be president of the United States. And it was deemed unfair. This is what I think. You have somebody like Donald Trump or Barry Goldwater, who will never lie down on the couch or Adolf Hitler or Stalin. They're not going to. Richard Nixon saw a psychiatrist to his credit. But these people are not going to lie down on a couch. Right. They are still. This is my opinion. They are still dangerous. And. You can judge, I think you can make a diagnosis of somebody not based on what they tell a psychiatrist, but their behavior and the words they use in public. In yeah, fact, I think that that's absolutely true. Yeah, I agree. 
You know, I, I had a related thought today when I was listening to something about Trump. And the thought I had was that I think a lot of what we see in him is an act, an act that works for him, that it's conscious, and it appears crazy, but it may not be crazy. It might simply be a manipulation so that when he makes fun of that um, reporter who was disabled, right? Uh, he, he knows that this is a way to, to stir up his folks, and that's who he was playing to all the time, and it worked in the first election. So can you say that that's crazy, or can you say that that's a tactic? So right. I, I have some sympathy with this notion that you should not be... Um, you should not be diagnosing people except in a clinical setting. Right. But but Freud, it, se it seems to me that there is a, Fro a Freudian critique of history where Freud didn't diagnose patients, but I believe he wrote about Moses and Michelangelo yeah. Yeah. and, and right. he looked at people's art and never had Michelangelo on the couch, but was able to suggest. Isn't the Goldwater rule a disservice to uh, original thinking and interpretation? I, I don't think that's fair to, to the mental health community. Um, I think it's complicated. Do you, do you know about the Teitelbaum rule? No. This is something uh, that we had at Mount Sinai Hospital in the Department of Psychiatry. If you're trying to figure out if somebody's crazy or not, you go to Mrs. Teitelbaum, <laughs> the, the Grand Concourse, and, and you describe Mrs. Teitelbaum. This is what the guy says. This is what he's doing. <laughs> And if she says Meshuggah, <laughs> so the badness of crowds. Yeah. Uh, let me ask this of Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Because of the Goldwater rule, the mental health community has laid back, not offered up diagnoses on dangerous. Americans who are out in public. Right. They're not protecting us from media figures and politicians. Right. Do you worry that perhaps the silence has contributed to the the this the, the decay in this country? I have two thoughts on this subject. Number one, that this is why it's very powerful. Uh, to be Dr. Samuel Benjamin, who is not actually a doctor. <laughs> and therefore, Dr. Benjamin is able to speak much more freely on the subject and can say unequivocally that Donald Trump is, is batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. 
this colleague, he can't say that, even though he, no, actually, you make a good point. He's strategic, so we don't know if he's crazy or not. Right. But the other thing I want to say is, it it's funny that so much weight is given to this question that, in a sense, is a very niche question. Why do we have to frame it in terms of his mental health? Why can't we simply say, is this person fit? for office based on everything they've done and how they've lived their life. Why do we have to talk about it in terms of this one little, this one little mm -hmm. uh, area of mental health in, in, just as a human, as a member of society, as an adult, there are all kinds of ways. There are all kinds of tests that he fails, whether or not you think he fails the, the sanity test. He fails the being a decent human being not uh, not a shyster, being uh, not a complete asshole. There are all sorts of things that he just fails every day routinely. So why does it matter at a certain point? The mental health bar is actually way higher. He's failing. He's not even getting close to that question. He's just not behaving like a decent human. So clearly he's not fit for office. But Abraham Lincoln had severe mental health issues. Right. Severe depression most of his life, and yet he was perhaps our greatest president. He and Washington, and mostly the, a lot of his mental health health issues and his depression uh, devolved from his inability to find a suit that fit. It's <laughs> very tall yet very thin, so you, he. Find something with the right shoulders, but then the sleeves were up to his elbows. That the first, his last words to John Wilkes Booth was not the suit, the head. Don't, don't hit, just hit the head. Don't ruin the suit. And if he got a suit with sleeves that were long enough, it was twice as wide as his shoulders. <laughs> it was a lifelong. That's why he wore the crazy hat just to distract <laughs> the completely ill-fitting suits. So he was a, it was a sad, uh, it was a lifelong problem. I, I thought he wore the hat. What? By the way, that's why he looked so good with an axe. Mm -hmm. Because you roll up his sleeves, and then you couldn't see how short the sleeves were. <laughs> a lot of times, accessorizing can be an answer to your fashion challenges. And he found the perfect accessory, the axe. The axe. So he wasn't into chopping wood. He was just, he had a bad oh, And he had a better tailor. Those trees exactly. would still be standing. Today. Absolutely. It all gets down. Yes. The 25th Amendment. Mm-hmm. They, after January 6, for many reasons, but there was incontrovertible evidence that this man was not fit to hold office. And nobody could say this is this is a sick, crazy, dangerous man. At some point, if you were to poll you know, 2,000 mental health professionals here in America and say, what do you think? We have a problem here. What do you think? Is this normal? Is this sane? A lot of people in my profession have ignored that Goldwater rule and have come out and talked about his insanity and his unfitness and his narcissism. So it's not that nobody has done this. It, it definitely has been done. Unfortunately, uh, nobody has put them in jail or, or, or censored them in any which way. Well, here's my question, though. What is it? What would it achieve? Let's say you did get a poll and, and, and a unanimity of, of 
this profession, saying this guy's nuts. Then what? You think that well, would convince? No. Then that I think then I think the the right wing destroys the the mental health community. They they come after. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It wouldn't solve the problem. They don't care. They don't care about uh, any of the, the actual data. And they already think that these pointy headed intellectuals are their enemy. Right. So they don't need much more proof. You can't have a conversation with these uh, cretins, these lunatics, because when it comes to gun violence, the first thing out of their mouth now is mental health, mental health, mental health. But nobody asks them to define mental health, define mental illness. Uh, will Very you? few of these shooters are mentally ill, it turns out. How can that That's be? Cause. How can that be? It just is. Some of them are, but most of them are not mentally ill. They have some character issues. They have uh, feelings that they want to be famous or that they want to right a certain wrong. But this has been looked into. It's also been looked into. 10 out of 10 of them have bad manners. <laughs> So it's civility. It's it's an issue of civility. There are many steps you can take before you shoot up the school <laughs> to get your opinion out there to try to fix whatever's bothering you. That there is, are many steps, and they go right to right. They go right to to ten. Right. It's like bad manners. It's like if you go to someone's house for dinner, and and they're serving a lot of stuff you don't like, and they're talking about stuff you don't like. There are many you could you could just get up and say screw you and and. And, and leave. Right. But there are many things you can do shy of that. You can hint about the food. You can try right. to change the conversation. Yeah. So you're saying, for example, their pinky should be extended, perhaps, when their trigger finger is active. Yeah. Little. They should, they, they should. They could write graffiti on the side of the school. That's a good. That's. I mean, that, they're all. Yeah. You could. Uh, you, you could um, write a funny, insulting note and tape it to the back of the teacher's uh, jacket. The, I mean, these are less satisfying if, if you're really trying to get your yayas out, but they, they, they can achieve something. You know, David, you just fell into the same trap that Hillary fell into when you called these people cretins. That's going to get you absolutely nowhere. It's just going to, you know, make them more dug in to what they already know. What do you want to do, build bridges? Um, there is some research, actually, that the way you talk to people like that is not by telling them they're, they're crazy or they're full of it or whatever. No, you're right. You're because right. That just makes them dig in more. So what do you say? What you say is, could you explain me? How do you get that idea? How do you know that? What, 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 that's the tack you take. And I thought you were going to say what you say to them is I'll take a large fries with that. Right. No. No. So. so I've tried that. 
can't yeah. be done. And, and can't be done. And I've done it through texts and emails with uh, friends of mine who have gotten the bug. And I yeah. just asked them to put it. I said, let me just ask you a couple of questions. And these are yes or no questions. They cannot contain their rage. It's about rage. It's not, there, there are no rational answers. And if you, they get violent. Once you ask a question that uh, opens up a wound, they, they get real. I don't think it's not about reason. It's about anger and rage. And I, I know I'm not, I know I'm mentally ill, but these people are in desperate need of help. Do, do we vote on what constitutes mental illness? Is, is it a consensus? Do, does, do the American people get to decide who's sane and who's not? Or do we rely? I'd like to think we rely on the experts. That No, you don't rely on the experts. You, 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 you rely on the sense of the community. And they are members of a fairly large community. You know, if somebody um, thinks that uh, a certain kind of prayer ceremony is going to change the fate of the world, you might consider him a little deranged. But if they're part of a big group of people, that all believe this? Yeah, they get their own parade. <laughs> right. So how do you treat mass hysteria, mass mania? That's, that is very difficult. Because the psychology of groups is very different from the psychology of individuals. You get 10 guys together, none of whom would murder anybody. And you put them together, and they can string somebody up. It's also hard to treat a, a large group because of the furniture. <laughs> I mean, one couch already takes up a lot of room. <laughs> and I mean, they can't, they've got a very big loft. They can't, they can't share it. You can't share a couch. So 10 people... Yes. Getting caught up in yes. something. Now, I think. It's I called th a minion. A minion. <laughs> Freud, Freud's explanation was that you give up your own superego. And the group has its own superego. Wow. And the group says it's okay. Wow. To string the sky up, even though if you were if it just you in the sky, you never would have done it in a hundred years. That's how football works, also. <laughs> <laughs> like you, yeah, on the street, you wouldn't just tackle a guy. Or uh. so I belong. I guess I belong to a tribe of of you know leftists, and we hate. We like to hate the same people. And I, I like to think I'm immune from mass hysteria, but none no. of us is, right? Nobody's immune. 
And are people better equipped now at manipulating mass hysteria? For example, somebody like Trump, when you were saying that he, he may not be crazy, he may know exactly what he's doing, that are there? There, there have always been people who could do this. Even Hitler, before Freud, before Freud. Yeah, Hitler did not read Freud, I guarantee you. These people, they could not write an essay about what they're doing. But instinctively, they just know how to do it. They know what's going to play well, and they run with it. At one time in Vienna, you had Freud and Hitler sharing the same space, right? They were also members of the same tennis table club. <laughs> mentions, a few mentions of that. And they were very evenly matched. <laughs> it, would, it, would, it would be like 2118, 21-19. It was quite the rivalry. Right, right. And Hitler had an advantage because he was used to one ball, playing with one ball. That's right. And also he was shorter. And a lot of the, the thing with table tennis, you got to bend your knees. You really got to get <laughs> a lot more work if you're tall. Hitler was already down there. So he was. Yeah. Has anybody fantasized what would have happened if Freud got Hitler on the couch? That sounds like a good novel. I, I like know. That. I know. I read this Stephen Fry. He wrote a novel about someone going back and like poisoning the well. It's like some Princeton professor. This is a novel from the late 90s. Stephen Fry wrote. And the, a guy goes, a Princeton, I think, physics professor successfully is able to time travel. He goes back and he poisons the well in the town where Hitler's parents uh, in, in Steyr, I think, this little town in Austria. Um, it's good. This sounds really good. Yours. I like this a lot. An office. Like, like that uh, Steve Martin. La yes. Pana yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, exactly. Somebody yeah. at office hours, I think it was Dave Ami. I'm not sure. I have to find out. We were, you know, if you could go back in time, would you kill, the, would you kill baby Hitler? Which was actually a question asked during the Republican debates in 2016. That's how I, I think I mentioned this on the show, on your show about two years ago. I, I've thought about this a lot myself. And if I could go back in time, I would just change my lunch order. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody I think, trivial, but it's important. Do you remember the seven percent solution? Uh, fr uh, Freud, cocaine and Sherlock Holmes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And. Similar premise, book and a movie. Somebody said, I think it was Dave on me who said, if he could go back in time, he, he wouldn't kill baby Hitler. It would be really nice to him, give him love and affection, heal him and cure him and make him a loving, sentient being. Wait till, he, wait till he's 18 and then kill him. <laughs> I, I I think it was David on uh, me who comes to office hours. We have to wrap it up. This was uh, very interesting. Uh, Matt, 
Mad Magazine used to have a section called Dead Letter. The dead letters that were in the post office. So one of them was from Adolf Hitler's cousin in America to Adolf and said, Adolf, we really need paper hangers over here. <laughs> Ten times what you're making in Austria. <laughs> Get on the next boat. Right. There were, and there were relatives in Long Island, the, Sh the Schickelgrubers, weren't there? Never met them. I wouldn't know. But did you know about that? That they they they, they moved to, to Long Island, and wow. one of whom he he had a bad nephew who who Hitler got a job. I'm not making this up. Hitler had a nephew who was <laughs> was a bad seed. Oh. He was Hitler had a, even Hitler had a troubled nephew who he had to find work for. He got him a job in a bank in Berlin and he kept stealing money. So he kicked him out of the country. He moved in the 30s to Great Britain and the nephew turned on Hitler and signed, I'm not making this up, with William Morris, moved to America and was on the lecture circuit talking about my horrible uncle Adolf and William, wow. and William Morris. I wonder, I wonder who he hated more, Hitler or his agent? <laughs> who causes my... Let's plug some... Uh, what are you reading? And, and then we'll plug some, some gigs. Me? Yeah, what are you reading right now? What are you... Not what are you planning to read... But what are you sitting down with? I, um, the Flanders Road, I just started, written by a guy by the name of Simon. And it's about the First World War and um, an experience that he had in the First World War of seeing his captain be shot off his horse when this French cavalry attack took place against the German panzers. Oh, not the First World War, the beginning of the Second World War. <clears throat> By the way, you know you've, you've, got, you've gone dark on us. Yeah, it's the sun. We're oh, good. Outside. Okay, I, I thought it was yeah. something. Do you know the, um, what, what did they call the First World War before the Second World War? The Great War. Great War, yeah. yeah. How did they know it was so great? <laughs> Who says it was I've been saying that they should call World War II Great War II. Yeah, that's better. That's better. Yeah. Yes. Well, it was. It was just a continuation yeah. of World War One. Yeah, a long intermission, and then but, Act Two. Both um, my both my grandparents grandfathers fought in World War Two in World War One. I. I have hmm. a feeling they when they were drafted they went great, just great. It's great. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to plug, um, something, um, we're going to have, it's getting very dark. It's getting but, uh, dark. I'm getting sleepy. We're, <laughs> I, someone asked me to appear and I'm going to do it on, on November 5th. There's a vegan comedy show. I think all the comedians are vegans. 
So I'm going to be doing 12 minutes in the in some vegan comedy show at a club called, I think it's called 31. I'll plug it closer to the date. It's two it, months away. And where is it? In Manhattan. I think it's Midtown. Yeah. In the meatpacking district. No, I don't know where it is. <laughs> Great. Everybody go by Today Is Now by, Today is now. by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. And it has the Feldman guarantee. If you if you don't enjoy the book, I will reimburse you. That's and I part of this is the Feldman guarantee uh, addendum. I will if you are in the area, I will sign the book for you personally. Get it, and I'll meet you and sign it. Great, I love okay, you guys. Bye. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. You, you guys bye. look adorable. Thank bye, you. Emil. You, you look you look you look gorgeous. Okay. Thank bye. you. Bye. You're, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday, and it includes a, there's a fly buzzing around me that I've seen grow from a child to a young man. I, I literally have watched this fly grow, and uh, I can't wait to kill it. Speaking of veganism, I, uh, yeah. The Quizmaster is here. Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger. And are we going to take on who are we? Who am I challenging today? Uh, today we are challenging uh, our next guest, who is Emil Guillermo. Well, why don't we do this? Uh, Emil always comes loaded with things he wants to talk about. Why don't we uh, go 20 minutes with Emil? Uh, well, I, I want to kill this fly. I have like a blood lust. Can't, can't you open a door, David, instead of a, a window? Or you have one of those kind of apartments, right? With has, actually has a window. No, it's not sealed for your protection. No, but I want to kill this thing. I'm a vegan, but I want to kill this fly. So in 20 minutes, Dan, we'll come back. What's the quiz on? Um, in late August 1973, a botched bank robbery in the Stockholm resulted in a hostage situation. And over the course of a six-day standoff, the captives formed an unlikely bond with their captor, giving rise to the term Stockholm Syndrome. Right. Today's quiz is on psychology. Of, oh. Ooh. Okay. Is this, is this payback for talking about pork uterus? Well, we heard you last week, and I, I brought the quiz for you. No, oh. it's payback for your uh, po poem about Sin-Q from the Symbolese Liberation Army. <laughs> to this day, you get him talking about Sin-Q. Sin-Q, yeah. You, he will not shut up about Sin-Q. So we'll, all right, we'll see you in 20 minutes. Hopefully the fly will be dead by now. Did you hear about by the then. anchor woman who she was giving her you know doing a reader she opened her mouth the fly went into yes. her mouth yes you but can do that that that's a safe way that's a, a humane way to deal with your fly but, but, but she it wasn't in america right I, i'm not sure why i just caught the little headline that I, I knew she was on television i knew the fly was ingested well went into her mouth and that she kept on going so i'm, I'm not sure if it was maybe she's a lizard person Perhaps maybe it's part of her, you know, regular diet. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, Emil Guillermo. 
Yes. Host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Also a columnist for ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Yeah. What would PETA say about my wanting to kill this fly? Well, we had a number of flies this weekend and my my wife uh, did all she could to just sort of like shoo them away. She didn't want to try. I mean, first of all, unless they're totally drunk or old, they're they're too fast. They're too quick for you. You can't grab them. But you can shoo them away. You keep doors open. You know, that that would be the way. I Or I you can not, leave wine out. Don't they die if you leave some wine out? Won't they? I don't you? know about wine, but I, I just know that I haven't seen my wife this way in a long time. But she, you know, I, I never noticed before. I thought that, but she actually shoos them away. She takes um, like a bug that she finds on on the on the tabletop or something she'll she'll capture it a spider for sure she'll capture the spider well, spiders i get yeah spiders yeah. you don't look at but i well i shoe flies i squash them with my shoes is that cl close <laughs> no so I, what, what, what would PETA be mad at me for wanting to kill nah, a fly? they wouldn't be mad at you but they would say david try better try better but don't flies cause be better don't they cause disease well, it depends on where they're snooping around. I suppose they could, but uh, I think they have such a limited life that one should have a sense of kindness, a sense of, of um, you know, knowing that these beings won't be, uh, you know, around very much. I mean, the, the life, the lifespan of a fly is what days? I mean, it's it's not long. So I, I would think it's a test of kindness. And, you know, we could always exercise a little, a little of that. So yeah, what about mosquitoes? I'll kill those suckers. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I know. Well, you, you could go a long way by preventing making your home skeeter free, you know, getting the standing water away and, and that sort of thing. You could use... Um, some natural sprays, some repellents to make sure you, you know, mosquitoes aren't attracted to you. I, I don't, I, I look, I've been in my COVID closet for two, two years. I, I have not had a, a mosquito issue, but uh, did you see that poll that shows that very liberal people are kind of giving up on the pandemic? Uh, like yeah. Hang on, for, hang on for one second. I, 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 your microphone is coming in very hot. Oh, very hot. Okay. Can you turn it down a little? Yeah. Sorry about that. Is that better? I think so. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. So, oh, that's too low. Oh, too low. Okay. How about there? Too yeah. hot. Too <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll, I I have to go into Zoom, I think, to, to adjust that. Just bring it down just a... a, a just a hair? A, a, yeah. As we hair. say in show that? business, a... No, I won't say it. Okay, how about that? That's better. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but PETA, what is their view on abortion? Um, you know, I I think they're pro they're pro choice. I think uh, I you know I I I have not asked. I mean, it really hasn't come up. They're pro euthanasia. You know, in terms of uh, of of. The overpopulation of animals. They are pro euthanasia. Yeah, yeah, 
I mean, that that's one of the things. They're they're anti, um, you know, the the uh, so-called shelters that are no-kill, the no-kill shelters that only exist to make people feel good about not killing animals that, you know, should never have existed in the first place if they'd spayed and neutered their, you know, their animals. I, Pete is totally against no-kill shelters. So I would imagine that they have no problem. They're, I, I would say definitely they're pro-choice in terms of human beings. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, Biden's speech, which I think he's about to deliver. Yeah. In Are you into it? Are you excited about it? Uh, well, I, I think he's... I've seen a couple of his speeches this week yeah. where he said, you cannot be, call yourself pro-cop and pro-insurrection. Yeah. That you... There's, I, th I think he's going on the offensive. He's he's right about MAGA. They are fascist. He's going to call them semi-fascist, but they are fascists. If they can get away with calling us Marxists and socialists, then we have every right to call them what they are, which is fascists. They're closer to fascists then we are to socialist Marxists or communists. I mean, my God, I wish there was one socialist other than Bernie in the Senate. Yeah. Yeah, we're not we're not socialists. And they call to call a, a Medicare socialized medicine is a joke. I mean, it's you know, you're you're right. Uh they're closer to fascism than extremely liberal or progressive people are to being socialists or communists. Yeah. So I, I think that Biden is getting that pep in his step. You know, he's winning a few battles. His uh, poll numbers are up like five points. And rightfully is, so. Yeah, it's a major move. Look, and I I am not in agreement with uh, the incremental move in terms of student loans. I think he should have forgiven much more than the uh, the 10000 and the 20000 on the Pell Grants. But I think that's a, a move in the right direction. I think that an overhaul of education is what's, what's necessary. I think he's gotten a lot of really positive feedback from, you know, what he's done, what the, what the house is able to do, what this, what the Congress was able to do. So I, I think he's just taking advantage of that. And it, it coincides with, with uh, Trump getting beaten down on the, you know, his Mar-a-Lago defense, the special master, who knows if that's going to get through uh, the judge that he, he picked in Florida. Uh, I think she's going to be a little more circumspect, but she's she had she didn't rule today when um, she uh, heard from Trump and his folks. But it it just looks like you know on Trump today, you know what he said on a conservative talk show. He said that he would that he would pardon all the insurrectionists, which only you know gives. Biden more credibility that, hey, you can't, you know, when Biden says you can't be law and order and pro-insurrectionist. Right. Doesn't make sense. So I, I think this is a turning point for all the GOP folks who are hanging in there with the election denier in chief. I think at some point, I mean, real quick, they're going to have to decide it's time to cut Donald Trump loose as 
the F POTUS, the former president of the United States, and say, that's it. He's not he's not our guy. I mean, some people are still hanging in there. I, I think you start to see little signs that more Republicans are becoming more rational. Even the, the Wall Street Journal today did a, a an, an editorial, a lead editorial about how uh, Trump was anti-Asian going after uh, Trump's secretary, Elaine Chow, the trans- the uh, transportation secretary. Trump, uh, you know, uh, Chow is married to uh, Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell and Trump are kind of at loggerheads. But Trump said, accused Chow of being a, a person trying to take advantage or trying to get rich on China. Mm-hmm. And making anti-Asian remarks, and so but she's from Taiwan. She's from Taiwan, exactly. And so it, it's it's not the first time that people who are anti-Chinese or anti-Asian, are, you know, want to attack an Asian American by saying, "Oh, you know, they're sympathetic toward the red Chinese or toward communist China," when in fact they're from Taiwan. Wen Ho Li, right, the nuclear uh, scientist uh, accused of espionage back in the, the early two thousands. Same thing. He's from Taiwan. So I think a lot of people are coming around to to understanding just how depraved Donald Trump really is. It takes a while because you get addicted to winning. You get addicted to the idea that he is the winning way. But when you see how small the base actually is, the Trump base actually is, then I think Republicans are going to have to say, we, you know, if we, if we, if Republicans want to win the midterms and have uh, any kind of chance, not just in the midterms, but in the general, they got to dump Trump. I think we're going to start seeing the dump Trump move among moderate to very, uh, you know. But he's done pretty well in the primaries. A lot of his candidates. Yes and no. I think some have, but he's also hurt some others. I mean, it's 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 mixed. It's not uniform that you know trump trump supported election deniers win um palin I mean, loss that was yeah, interesting. palin loss that was big yeah and that was uh you know the ranked choice voting uh which indicated that palin wasn't even the number two choice for a lot of people that people because you know if they voted for the other guy or, or, it, it just means that the the way the way ranked choice voting works is that if your vote doesn't count, then they go with your second choice. And it seems that maybe some people left a second choice off because they hated Palin. So I think it's a great thing. You have a, a native Alaskan who is now the sole member of uh, member of the House. And a Democrat. And a, and a Democrat. And she wins. She fills, finishes out the term. But now she's got to get elected uh, on her own. So... Palin, I think, is still in it, but uh, for the for for the for the next term for, for after. the next she, she doesn't go in as an incumbent and right. you know power the incumbency. Let's hope it helps the the native Alaskan. So right. So there's a lot of things. Like t- tonight's speech, I think, is exciting because you know Biden is now I, he he just for for a time he just was the guy everyone left to dump on. And now I think he is back to campaign mode where people looked up to him. People were 
happy to see him, um, you know, emerge. And I think there's something about a taking the single issue of Trump and just being behind it and saying, you know, that's a unifying thing. And it, it, like you said, coinciding with the Mar-a-Lago, you know, uh, DOJ dispute and all the other things that Trump is into. I don't know how anyone can consider Donald Trump a serious candidate for anything, for anything in our democracy. So this is a perfect time for for, for Biden to let people know, hey, it, our democracy really is at stake, especially if we want to hand over the keys to this guy again or to Republicans who back this guy. You know, it's I, I think I don't know what he's going to say, but he's due for for a positive, some positive feedback. Uh, this is the time talking about democracy. Right. Did you think he would be able to turn it around? Because there's no question that politically he's turned it around. And I, I don't know if that means the Democrats are going to keep the House. That's a tough, heavy lift. But looks like yeah. they could keep the Senate. Uh, a month ago, we thought he was as bad as Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not all Biden now. Some of it was the Republican conservative Supreme Court and what they did. Uh, I think they really handed an issue uh, to the Democrats and the lifeline to Biden. You know, when Roe v. Wade was uh, essentially overturned, the Dobbs decision was backed by the Supreme Court. And I I think that I, I it's it's hard to believe that people didn't think women would come together and be a force, but they have, you know, to date, you know, since that that Supreme Court move, and it's only benefited the the Democrats, and now they're they're primed to 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 reap the benefits of that. And, you know, I say, uh, I I don't know why the Republicans didn't see that. But they were they were totally, totally blind to that. They they didn't, just could not see that happening. That or Joe Biden. I. But there's a part of me that thinks the Republicans figure we'll cross that bridge when it comes to it. Like, well, what what happens if we overturn Roe v. Wade? Roe v. Wade is popular, and I think the Republicans figured we know we'll figure that out. We have ways. I don't think they're that smart. I, I, I th- well, I, I don't. I don't think that. I, I think they 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 were counting on a lack of cohesion amongst people on the left, liberals, and and women to come together and 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 fight back. But this has really, uh, you know, gotten. Okay, so as bad as the Republicans are, Mm. and they're out in the open, there's no longer any denying it. They have shown their hand. They're anti-abortion. They're pro-insurrection. They're anti-democratic. If you look at the generic congressional ballot right now, 
The Democrats are leading 44.6 to 44.5. So the Democrats have a 0.1% advantage. So that means they're going to lose because of gerrymandering. You need like to be up four points if you're a Democrat to overcome the structural disadvantages in the House. It seems to me the Republicans are pretty smart that they overturned Roe. Right, to get their Christian right. And to get what they wanted. These, I think a lot of these Republicans genuinely are anti-abortion. They, they're getting what they want. They have the Supreme Court. They're going to get the House. They're going to slow Biden down. Granted, he'll have something to uh, run against. But uh, Herschel Walker, yeah, Herschel he, he, Walker is leading in the polls. He's he's out polling Warnock. I mean, it's within the margin of error. But the fact that Herschel Walker is co- even coming anywhere near close to beating yeah, Senator I, I saw, Warnock, the I Republicans are pretty. They're doing something right. Uh, I don't give them that much credit. Well, how do you explain? How do you explain I, the, the way American- you explain it? Is that uh, logic is optional in America? That's one of the things that's uh, that's wrong with our democracy. Or maybe yeah. the Republicans, maybe the Republicans understand America a lot better than the Democrats do. Maybe they, maybe they're able to tap into something that you and I and the entire Democratic Party doesn't understand or isn't willing to understand. Because the fact that 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 Herschel Walker yeah. is leading Warnick in the polls right now. That says How about something. This? How about says this? What, something. If, what if Herschel Walker is running against a white Democrat? Do you think he would win? Do you think he'd be leading? I mean, it's two black men right now. Uh, up against each other. And so it would be easy to say, oh, well, you know, America's racist. So, but now what if, what if there was a white person representing the Democrats? What do you think would happen? Then do you think Herschel Walker would get all the kind of support he's getting now from, from the conservatives? If there was a moderate white Democrat? No, I, I don't know. See, I, I, so I it, it's hard to, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of speculating here. I, I think the only thing, there's no logic to these things, just like there was no logic that Trump would win, you know, in 2016, he did. There's no logic that, uh, you know, that, that people would rally, continue to rally behind him until they're not. It seems like maybe something is turning and maybe, Republicans are turning against him now a little bit. That, that that's what gives me hope. Yeah, that there's some people who are logical on the on the right who are saying, "God, we can't have this guy be the the figurehead for you know America for for democracy." I mean, that's part of of Biden's pitch tonight. You know, if we we give the keys to this guy again, what what he'll do to American democracy? You know, can't imagine. Right. Let me just give you some poll numbers here because they're kind of interesting. So a generic congressional vote, uh, a Wall Street Journal poll 
shows Democrats up by three, shows uh, Biden up by six. If Trump and Biden squared off today, Biden would beat him by six percentage points. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Uh, Snapshot in time. Economist, YouGov, congressional generic poll. Democrats up by eight. That was yesterday. Quinnipiac shows Democrats up by four in a generic congressional vote. Up by four, up by eight. Politico, morning consult, up by five. Democrats up by five. Though Now that, that's yesterday. If the Democrats are leading the generic congressional vote by four, five points, that that can overcome the structural problems, gerrymandering. Well, I, I that think, suggests a wave, a, a blue wave. Yeah, and and mind you, you are still what um, something like what sixty days, sixty days away, ten weeks. Yeah, I mean, a lot can happen. Um, I think Trump could could be indicted. Trump no, he's not going to indict. No, he said he's not going to indict until after the election. Oh, after, all right. So if it, even if it comes after the election, uh, all you know, the weight of all this, you know, the news, you know, that's really anti anti Trump, anti Republican. It's it's going to have to weigh on the on the outcome. I think, and I I think the the Democrats can hold on, barring something stupid they do right <laughs> Who here's knows? what i think we should do because because it it, it it is labor day weekend and is the reverend barry w lynn in maybe we Quizmaster dan yes sir is the reverend here yes he is yes he is uh hey, look, reverend look. are you a, are you a tennis fan reverend uh, I I used to play it when I was in high school, but I gave it up and I don't play it now. I'm so old. I'm going to learn pickleball. Ah, hmm. pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see? And my daughter says it's old people like myself who are the best at pickleball. What about yourself? Or do you want to challenge me to a pickleball contest? I will challenge you to pickleball. But I do you see that <laughs> Washington Post op-ed on? pickleball as the savior of our democracy because it brings together young and old although your experiences it doesn't you know it's usually for old people but but also rich and poor and all these different uh, different races this could be the uh the stealth affirmative action we need in in america to bring people together via pickleball you know oh. socially don't you think, David, would you play pickleball with Reverend Barry and I? <laughs> it's time for the Inquisition or the Inquisition. Please welcome Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger. <laughs> you have been dragooned. The two of you didn't know it. You never... Yeah. Nobody expects the Inquisition, as Monty Python would say. Dan <laughs> Frankenberger, uh, we're going to have a quiz, aren't we? Yes, we are. Today's quiz is on Psychology 101. Psychology 101? 
That's right. We have six All questions. Right. Six questions. Six questions. And who do we start with? We start with the Reverend Barry. Okay. Then Emil, and then David. And uh, so Reverend Barry, you're going to answer first, and the uh, other gentlemen in that order are going to uh, pose their answers. Okay. So and question, question, oh, question hang on, hang on, hang oh, on. You've got to put money in the kitty. I have to put money in the kitty here. Hang on. Uh, are people taking bets? <laughs> All right. I'm winning four to nothing. Wow. I got off to a good start. Uh, let's, before, before we start, uh, Reverend, heads or tails? Ready? Heads or tails? Heads. Heads. Ah, it's tails. Okay. Emil, heads or tails? Tails. Oh, it's heads. Now I have 100 points. Too bad. All right. <laughs> I like eight. It's rigged. It's not rigged. Of course rigged. it's rigged. It's, this is like a carnival game and a cheap carnival that passes through town, convinces the local Catholic church to <laughs> la- allow them to sit on there and then has two separate books and they go to the nuns. This is true. They go to the nuns and they say, we, we really thought we'd do better, but here's <laughs> your cut. And it might be a couple thousand dollars. That's big money. All right. But they're crooks. Order. Order. <laughs> All right. Let's let's. Okay. All right. All right. First yeah. question. Reverend Barry, question yes. number one. Which of these theories of forgetting was put forward by Freud? Is it displacement, trace decay, repression, or full sack matrimony? <laughs> <laughs> I believe the answer is repression. Okay, Emil. Yes. Wait, don't you? Was he wrong? No, you well, have to. You, you, do you agree or disagree? Do you agree? Oh, uh, uh, all right. Uh, so the, the, say, say the four. Sure. The, Which the of these other theories, three, the other three think, answers without the sack? Which of these theories of forgetting was put forward by Freud? Displacement? Trace decay, repression, or full sack matrimony. You're getting the sack. Uh, I would say the one that uh, is more favorable to uh, porcine uteri, and that would be repression. I agree. The correct answer is a repression. Oh. Uh, so I have 100 points. Emil has zero in the reverend. That's uh, tied, tied up one to one to one. Okay. Uh, question number two. Emil is first this time. What do cognitive psychologists compare the mind to? Is it a computer, a keyboard, a television, or a liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti? <laughs> Once again, no porcine uteri, but, uh, uh, that would be a, did you say computer, a computer or what now? A computer, a keyboard, a television, or liver with beans. I would say computer. Mr. Feldman. I'm going to agree. Rev? I'm going to have to say television. The correct answer is a computer. How about, how about, how about, how about for the Reverend, how about cable? <laughs> Reverend. Play, play tablets. Uh, okay, so that would give Emil one point, David one point, 
and none for the reverend. Here comes question. Whoa, is that the reverend slipping? That, no. That, that's, this, that's the sound of, I won't say it. The nun's coming to his rescue. No, 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 no. <laughs> the money falling out of the kitty? This is the sound of Chris Christie getting up from his chair. In summer. Uh, this is him. I'm under a lot of pressure. I'm, I'm moving, as you know. Yeah. This was one of the key days for packing up. But I'll talk about that later. I don't want to. So you're in a interrupt. bad mood. You're in a bad mood. No, I'm exhausted. Well, we I, I can't think straight. Well, you're losing. I know. All right. You think I would lose under normal circumstances? This is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn and his wife getting out of town. <laughs> There's a reason they're leaving uh, Washington, D.C. We're going to get yep. to the bottom of this. I don't think it's the kids. I don't think it's the I think there's okay we'll, we'll get to that later let's <laughs> let's continue this quiz dan question you're, number you're, three yeah uh, i'm just gonna who's who David has, is first what david is first i'm first this term refers to our ability to improve or enhance our performance of well-learned tasks when in the presence of others is it social facilitation group polarization, attribution theory, or Cialis gangbangus? <laughs> Cialis. The Reverend, you laughed at that, Reverend. Yeah, I don't know how I knew anything about that. I, Cialis gangbangus. Uh, that's Latin. So what, what are the first yeah. three? Reread the question again. Let me get my, sure. head, let me get my head going here. This term refers to our ability to improve or enhance our performance of well-learned tasks when in the presence of others. Social facil facilitation, group polarization, attribution theory. Social, social, the first one. Okay, uh, up next is Reverend Barry. Uh, I would have to agree with David on that one. Emil. Well... The initials would be SF. I'm from San Francisco, and therefore, whatever the answer with SF. Social facilitation, I believe. All three of you are correct. Good job. <laughs> so, the score is Emil has three, David has three, and the Reverend is in dead last. Dead last. Dead <laughs> <And> last. <laughs> he has two. The good news is you're first. So here's question number four with the Reverend going uh, first. All when right. Listening, when listening to a list of words, what does the serial position effect say you are most likely to remember? Is it the start in the middle, the start and the end, just the end, or coming from an air shaft and protect the weak. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say the answer is just the last. Just the end. Yeah, right, just Emil. the end. Okay, uh, can, can you say that? Yeah, repeat the question. This is hard stuff. Yeah. When listening to a list of words, 
What does the serial position effect say you are most likely to remember? Is it the start and the middle? The start and the end? Just the end? Or coming from an air shaft and protect the weak? I would have to say just the end. What did the Reverend Barry W. Lynn say? I said just the end. Are you playing it? Are you playing a different game? Are wow. you not listening? Wow. You can't see I'm, below I'm pretty it. hostile right now. Yes. Uh, I'm going to agree with the Reverend out of fear. <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer is the start and the end. Oh. Oh, oh. oh man. That was my second. <laughs> the, uh, the serial... The serial position effect suggests that the beginning of the list will be remembered because these words have had time to be rehearsed and the end will be remembered because these were heard most recently and are still in our short-term memory. Mm. So, going on... Hang on, we, oh, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. It, wait, this is just a theory. I don't buy this theory. I think people... For example, I did those... That test where you go to some kind of a doctor, the doctor asks you a bunch of questions. You're supposed to remember various things throughout the course of a 15-minute conversation. And I did pretty well, but I forgot what day it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but the other stuff like, oh, yeah, there was a, a pig and an... It's a black cat and a red rose. Black cat, red rose. I can't deal with cats. Due to uh, being severely, se severely allergic oh, to don't, every here, cat. Here, here, pet my cat right here. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't she cute? You listen to her purring. She's <laughs> raising the pot. Yeah. Just... So we got that all wrong. Oh, Chris Christie has been sitting. <laughs> in a pair of short, just shorts on a leather recliner. And this is him getting up. That's the sound of Chris Christie getting up from a leather recliner September 1st in a pair of shorts. It took a long oh, time. I, oh, I'm going to get yelled at now. Oh, boy. Somebody's going to come. Oh, I'm going to get into trouble with somebody. Oh, boy. Question number five to Mr. Guillermo. Yes. Uh, the term hindsight bias refers to one's belief that he or she can accurately predict the future based on blank. Uh, that would be a blank. Oh, this is fill in the blanks. Yep. Here comes, here comes the choices. Should I read it again real quick? The term hindsight bias refers to one's belief that he or she can accurately predict the future based on blank. Is it? The outcome of similar events that have occurred in the past? Is it clairvoyant sensory information from ancestral beings? Thinking an outcome was predictable after learning the results? Or how good they think their butt looks today? <laughs> <laughs> hindsight bias. Ah, uh, well, even we're hind quarter by it. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm having a little problem with my, my hind sound. There, there, there's hindsight and hind sound. 
and my Heinz sound is acting up. Is that Heinz? Sounds, sounds like an empty Christie. That's the benefit of Heinz sound. Heinz. I say the, the the first answer, the past. Number number one, Mr. Feldman. You're going to have to repeat that question. I apologize. I know. I, I, the only reason I'm asking you to repeat the question is because it will piss off the reverend. Anything <laughs> that, that gets the reverend angry. This is the only show that has an angry <laughs> reverend. <laughs> hey, come on. I, I'm going to get wait till you see me next week. <laughs> <laughs> The short, no. the, the right. term hindsight. Yes. Uh, let me start again. The term hindsight bias refers to one's belief that he or she can accurately predict the future based on blank. Is it the outcome of similar events that have occurred in the past? Clairvoyant sensory information from ancestral beings. Thinking an outcome was predictable after learning the results. That. Who okay. who gave the who was up first? I did. Emil was first. And what did he say? He uh, chose the first answer: the outcome of similar events that have occurred in the past. I'm going to disagree. Just Reverend Barry. Well, I'm going to have to. Sorry, man. He brings his own. <laughs> I know. Choir of angels. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with Emil on this. Ooh. Well, the correct yep. answer has been given by David. Think David? Yep. Oh, oh come on. Oh, yeah. hindsight, uh, hindsight bias is the belief that after learning the outcome of an event, one should have been able to foresee this outcome. It is also, also known as I knew it all along theory. Right. Oh. So as soon as you learn the results, you think, oh, I knew that. Reverend Emil, yeah. don't feel bad if it makes you feel any better. He gives me the answers before the segment starts. <laughs> but I can't remember them. No. So it's. <laughs> no, news is you're up first, Feldman. I'm Question number six. He, do, he does not give Here me. The, he does not give me the answers in advance. Let me start my brain. Hang on. OK, just Reverend, just having a little sip of coffee here. All right, that's my brain going. Turning the crank. Okay. Question number six. The highly controversial... Is this the last question? This is the last question. And and might I add that I have four, Emil has three, and the Reverend has two. All right. The highly controversial Milgram experiment... Of 1963, tested the Stanley which, Milgram experiment. It tested which form of compliance? Was it obedience, reinforcement, pressure, or threats of pegging? Threats of pegging. That was mm. a, a beautiful song, <laughs> I believe. Anne Murray recorded that in the set. I think she uh she I sang it. it no, I think she uh she sang it in Deep Throat Six. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that was where it came from. We have an angry and obscene reverend on tonight's show. I am going to uh, what what was the, what was the question? The highly controversial 
Stanley Milgram experiment. Obedience. 19- was it obedience, reinforcement, pressure, Order. or threats of pegging? Obedience. You're going with obedience. Uh, Reverend Barry, hallelujah. Yeah, I would say obedience. Emil. I'm going to go with obedience as well. Being obedient myself. The correct answer is obedience. (laughs) (laughs) Well... That was your Catholic sound effect. Uh, what what do we do, Dan? I think I actually won. <laughs> yeah. That's hey, you won. This, this never happened before. That's well, not never fun. happen again. <laughs> if they pick something. No, look, I, t- I took a class. Uh, uh, I thought I wanted to be a pastoral counselor for a while. I took classes in psychology in seminary and for a final exam, one professor, it was all question just like Dan asked, you know, multiple choice. And uh, I got a terrible grade, as did most of the people in the class. Now, when it came to for him to try to explain the test, it was clear that his answer sheet was one off so that if the correct answer for question B or the question two was B, uh, he was shifting it to the correct answer for the third question. Oh, my God. He refused, he refused to accept this explanation. And to this day, I believe that he was engaged in something as, as evil as the Milgram experiment, <laughs> which is, the Milgram experiment, of course, involves uh, so-called electric shocks to people. And then they what they do is they... Uh, They'll show you something, a violent video, for example, and then see if you're more or less willing to push a button that does not, in fact, shock the person on the other end of the screen, but uh, but you think it does. Right. Yeah, that's so Stanley Milgram, he was a big pain in the butt. Oh, that was a answer to another question right that was peg peg. no the final uh, piece of my note says many participants obeyed completely and delivered the highest shock setting which would have killed the person yep yeah it's okay as long as they didn't test on animals (laughs) (laughs) so human beings will obey out of fear of what like why would you obey an order Unless you wanted to 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 shock that person, compliance, conformity, and the want, and the, please and the, the master and the sweet joy of hearing. Ah! I mean, I, if I could cause somebody to go, ah! <laughs> there's something of pegging. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> because because these sound effects, I mean, they're lovely, but I prefer uh, to hear them like when I'm going to sleep and instead of when we're supposed to be having an important conversation right. about current 
issues. Yes, we will. But I'm, yeah, I, I, I like will, this. I will hit the let me spray the laser at <laughs> this. I will obey. <laughs> OK, Mr. Milgram, is this supposed to give me an erection? Because <laughs> it sure makes me happy. All right. Emil Guillermo. Garbage can lid? <laughs> you have a gong behind you, right? I, my gong sounds totally... My, my gong does that. My, this is a Kulintang gong. It sounds totally different. This not, is a not, not so Kulintang. Not all gongs that's, that's like some kind of Chungking... <laughs> East meets <laughs> West? Lachoy <laughs> 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 makes... <laughs> Chinese no. food swing American? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> this is a Philippine Kulintanga. Okay. <laughs> Good night, gentlemen. Thank you, Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you, Emil Guillermo. Uh, you were a good sport. Not good enough to win. I kicked your arse. Hey. Believe in Serena Woman. You know, she said, reach for the stars, fail, get up again, repeat. Reach. It's not about winning, David. It's, okay. it's about reaching for the stars. You're, you're, you're keeping the Reverend waiting. <laughs> and, and you don't want to make the Reverend angry. Emil, oh, yeah. he's, oh my God. He's an angry Reverend. Uh, Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. That's his guest next week. And uh, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. And he is a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. He live streams. Live. How do people watch you? 2 p.m. Pacific. They can go to uh, YouTube, my YouTube channel, Facebook at uh, Emil Guillermo Media or on uh, Twitter at Emil Lamont. Right. Or amok.com. Actually, easy. Just go to my website, amok.com. Thank you, Emil. See you next week. Have a, have a lovely uh, Labor Day. Well, uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, this is a very stressful time for the Reverend Barry W. Lynn because he and his wife are moving. We have video. This is, this is them packing their... their uh, Value. Oh. Yeah, this is. Wish it was that easy. <laughs> Are you getting. So, the, the, the rep. First of all, I have to tell you, Emil, you can't participate because you live in California. But New England, New England, New England. On Sunday, Reverend, yep. I had brunch with Professor Adnan Hussein, his mm-hmm. wife, also a brilliant professor. Professor Jonathan Bick and uh, Professor Hussein's son, who is brilliant, but not a professor quite yet. Uh, You're going to be living in New England. That's correct. Grace Jackson is living in New England. She's really she's come from old England to To New New England. England. Yes. Uh, John, John Ross lives in New England. Yeah. Uh, Professor Ann Lee, I believe, lives somewhere in New England. Who am I leaving out? Somebody else. 
Oh. Bernie Sanders lives in New England. He's not invited. Okay. But I'm thinking we we could have like a confab. We should. We, we should have. We a, should. Yes. Yeah, somewhere in the middle of New England, maybe yep. during peeper season. Yes. And uh, just an idea. I like the idea. Maybe I will. Uh, don't. You're a reverend. Don't don't they have retreats that people can, sure. you know, like we, we get cabins and yes, and there my, are and my listeners can come to this retreat. I think that would be a wonderful idea. And we I really do. And we br- I'm quite serious about this. And we and brand them? the bill for it. That, <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, you see, I believe you made a promise, I, I think, to take. Joanne and I out to dinner next time he came in Wash to Washington, Didn't? but you decided to get arrested instead, which was mildly irritating. So we're going to have to have follow through with this confab. Oh, hang Feld, on for one second. Feldo con, we're going to call it. You're a lawyer. Yeah. What was my promise? Your promise was to take us to dinner. Where? Uh. Some fancy restaurant. No, no, no. Where did it, what city? No, it was, I don't remember. In Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I don't remember. But but where are you? You're, you've moved to New England. I haven't moved yet. Oh. If you were coming, like, tomorrow back to Washington, you could take us out to dinner then. Right, but I, the offer still stands. I will take you to the most expensive restaurant in Washington, D.C., Duke Zebert's. Yeah. I'm going to take you to Duke Zebert's in 1988. <laughs> We're going to get in the time yep. machine. I'm going to take you to Duke Zebert's. But That's you got to be in Washington D.C. But you've you've abandoned Washington D.C. No, I'm coming back. Uh, I'm I'm kind of orchestrating a couple of concerts here, one in October and one in November. So uh, you know oh. that's uh, I'm happy to. To do that, I'll come back. I'll tell you when I'm coming back, and uh, maybe you can—I don't know—have we're going to have a singer or two at the the dinner at right. Duke Zebert's 1988. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. It'll be great. So, before we talk about what's going on in the news, yes, the move. How are you holding up? It, it, it is stressful, isn't it? No, it's incredibly stressful. Um, No matter, you know, I always have difficulty giving up books, but uh, we have given up. I have given up about 300 books. But Reverend, there's one book you will never give up. That would be the Bible. I think I have four of those. No, Jacqueline Suzanne's. Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls, yeah. Somehow I missed it, although I did see the movie. Oh, my God. Beyond the Uh, Valley of the Dolls. Oh, that that was Too good to be true, yes. Yeah, it was. Uh, All right. So let's begin with Mar-a-Lago. You are a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Correct. And you are an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Correct. We have been told that this time we got him. We that this time he blew it. He admitted these documents were classified and we got him. 
What do we do with them now that we got them? <laughs> well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I, uh, I can tell you what I would do if I were defending Donald Trump. One thing I would do is I wouldn't indict him now before the, the midterms, which is kind of assumed. But I would go after his lawyers because his lawyers, the two of them that were there on June 3rd, both, one in a sworn affidavit and one vocally, orally, said that there, they had done a serious search and found no classified information. Now, that was a obvious lie because they couldn't possibly have not known that all these documents, which eventually were were seized with a court order, with a, a subpoena, and they made protestations that they had done a diligent search. It took the FBI a few minutes to find all the documents that we're now talking about that he's so upset about. It is not lawful for even a lawyer to lie to a government official. This is how people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman got in trouble during the Nixon administration because they made false statements to a government official. So these two lawyers, I would go after them. I would indicate that we're going to indict both of them. And then I'm going to hope that I can turn one of those lawyers to give evidence to the court, to the Justice Department, about the fact that Donald Trump knew what they were doing. Because a good defense would be, it wouldn't necessarily win, but it, the defense, they, he would say, I, I had no idea what those people were doing. I, 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 mm-hmm. How am I supposed to know? If they can turn one of his lawyers to admit that they had a conversation in which they told Trump, and I think this is very likely, they tell Trump and, and Trump goes, well, don't look too hard or words to that effect. But I would try to turn them because when you start to look at what you need to prove for Donald Trump himself to be in serious legal jeopardy requires some evidence that that he had knowledge of what had happened or even better, that he had directed his lawyers to take this response uh, to the FBI agents and then to the Department of Justice and say, it, it, we 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 made an exhaustive search and and we didn't find anything. Right. So that's that's the biggest attorney-client privilege. Where does it stop and where does it end? Michael Cohen was Donald Trump's attorney, and he went to prison. So Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump's attorney, yep. he it looks like he's going to be indicted by that grand jury in Georgia. Where does attorney-client privilege end? Well, one thing it doesn't cover is if you, as an attorney for someone, understand that the person is continuing to commit any criminal activity, that is not privileged. If you have advance warning that you're being asked to help commit a crime 
or cover up a crime. There is no attorney-client privilege. But what Trump says is there's so much attorney-client privilege. As I understand it, they found 500 pages worth of privileged attorney-client communication. That was in the review of the Department of Justice that they just finished a few days ago. And this is what... um, you know, they, they make a pretty strong case that they have found uh, that uh, the Department of Justice did not do some kind of, you know, lackadaisical investigation. But they really looked at it, and they certainly should not have a special master under circumstances like this. Special masters are used um, when there is a claim of attorney-client privilege, usually, and but since they've already done that within the Justice Department, um, I, I, if this wasn't a Trump appointee, this this whole issue would have been laughed out of federal court. You're talking about the the judge who's yeah, looking judge, into a special master, Judge Eileen Cannon. She's not the judge that authorized the search warrant, but she's the one that they appealed to in an oral argument uh, Thursday to. Um, to claim that the special master was needed. The Justice Department says it will screw up our investigation. Uh, Trump's lawyers on Thursday told the court that the fact that he didn't turn over all of this evidence was akin to failing to return a library book. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. This this judge, a Trump appointee, and Trump appointees don't always do what the master says, but I think in this case it's pretty clear that she doesn't care about any slowdown of the prosecution or potential prosecution of Trump or anyone else, and that she's going to rule, I suspect, in a few hours on special master and will decide it should be appointed. The the classified documents, he is not allowed to possess classified documents. They do not belong to him. They belong to the National Archives. There's no evidence that he declassified them any time during his presidency. Then the real issue is how important are these documents? Was it carelessness or did did he keep these documents as compromise against Emmanuel Macron? Apparently, there is a rumor that right. th- these documents uh, contained uh, evidence, perhaps, that Emmanuel Macron cheats on his wife or has some kind of kinky sex. This presidency began with compromise from the very beginning. That sure. was that was the word that there was compromise on Donald Trump. I happen to believe that politics runs on compromise. That Lindsey Graham, there's compromise on Lindsey Graham, and that turns him into Trump's lapdog. So I'm going to assume that most of that, most of those classified documents weren't nuclear codes 
weren't secret information about weapons that Donald Trump was going to sell to North Korea or Putin. I have a feeling he had some friends in the intelligence community who would entertain him with interesting tidbits that they discovered about his political opponents. We, they are spying on us. We do, we do know of course. that they're spying on us, that every, that they keep a fuck. <laughs> and somebody within the FBI or the, uh, or the CIA or the NSA to, to get in his good graces, to get an appointment would come over with files to keep him amused. Files about Mitch McConnell. Uh, right? Yes, I think you're 100% correct. That's the only explanation that really makes any sense. Now, I should say that the government is notoriously bad at determining what is releasable material or not. In fact, the whole Pentagon Papers case was based on the claim that the Pentagon Papers, which talked about the beginnings of the war in Vietnam, they were all, it was so important, it could not be revealed. And when Daniel Ellsberg leaked it to the Washington Post and the New York Times, the government was still trying to maintain that this was so sensitive, so important, so secret that it could not be revealed to the public. And uh, it was. And if it hadn't been published, the Supreme Court considered this and said it could be published. But Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska held a, a little uh, subcommittee meeting to discuss something. And uh, nobody was there but himself. And he said, I propose we place these entire document into the congressional record. And since there was no one to object, he looked around and he said, uh, it passes. So the Pentagon Papers would have been released, even if the New York Times and the Washington Post had not agreed to publish them. Right. So they're notoriously bad about over-classifying information. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, ignored his intelligence, his daily intelligence briefings, right? He was he, correct. He wouldn't sit in on them. He, he didn't know. And thank God he didn't. I can't imagine the, the head of the CIA or the NSA giving him secrets giving him access to important government secrets, assuming that there are important government secrets. Right. I have read in the Woodward book that General Kelly, his, his chief of staff, kept things from him, that they, they did not want him to know certain things because he had a big mouth. He spilled things to the Russians. So I have to assume that anything in his possession was, you know, clippings from the National Enquirer. Mm. And if anything rises to the high, the level of truly top secret, then we should fire anybody and everybody in the CIA and the NSA for letting him see that stuff. Yeah, well, there's a, uh, certainly there's a possibility well, there are two things that you don't want to reveal at this point. You don't want to 
find out. You don't want to publicize whoever it was who said, who told the Department of Justice, there's more stuff there. After these claims that there was nothing, they had done this exhaustive search, they didn't find anything. So there are people whose identity probably should be protected. And also on the world scale, there are all kinds of sources of human intelligence, there's even a code for it, that you don't want to compromise the people that are giving you information in a place like Russia or China or Venezuela or anywhere else. So you don't want to compromise them because they could be killed if it became apparent that they had somehow uh, given information of a security nature to someone in the CIA right. or the National Security Agency. Those are the two things. But the, the claim that the Department of Justice made in, in the hearing was mainly that this would compromise the ongoing investigation. And I think that's also true, but I think the judge is going to say, well, I, I think someone else should take a look at it. And this will drag on and on and on unless they got one of his lawyers to uh, rat on him. Right. As they should. Well, one of the things I was thinking about, Reverend, is our national security state that was created by Harry Truman, where the office of the president became more important than it need be because we were at we were fending off nuclear war. The, the, you, the president suddenly had the power to determine whether or not the planet even continues. So they only allow a certain type of person to become president. You can't have Henry Wallace be the vice president sure. if, if, if Roosevelt's about to die because... He's sympathetic to Stalin and communism, and that compromises national security. You can't have a left of center president because it's not just domestic issues. It's keeping us safe from foreign, <laughs> fictitious foreign enemies. So everybody's in that special club. You can't be president unless you're in that club. Obama was in that club before he even became a senator. He was vetted. That's right. They, they vet everyone to make sure that they're on team uh, <laughs> establishment. Team establishment. Team establishment. So the, the danger, Bernie's danger to the status quo is I think he, I think he could sit in the, uh, situation room and work with team establishment uh, and still be a leftist. Yeah. But I think he could. But all this classified material, this over classified material uh, falsely exalts the presidency into this thing that is the difference between life and death while we end up dying because the people from this club don't care if we live or die. We can't get, uh, we should be able to get uh, offbeat presidents 
who want to experiment a little without it being a national security crisis. I wonder if there's a way to separate this, like separate the job of president from commander in chief. Um, well, you, I mean, if you were rewriting the constitution today, that's one of dozens of changes that ought to be made. It was the one thing that Phyllis Schlafly and I agreed about, do not hold a constitutional convention. And of course, she was worried that liberals would pack the process and preserve abortion rights and limit guns. And I and many other people were concerned that, in fact, it would be right wing kooks who would show up and try to guarantee there's no abortion and that anybody can have an M16. But increasingly, I, I've come to believe we ought to change the Constitution of the United States. We ought to do away with the Electoral College. We frankly ought to do away with the Senate. We should have representation, representative government that's as closer to the people than the Senate is and uh, radically rethink the way the government functions in this country. Do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't think it's going to happen because there are, as you point out, such entrenched establishment interests that transcend politicians. It's what the media is. It's what all of America's biggest corporations are. They're all bought and paid for by the same interest in maintaining the status quo at any cost. Yeah. The job of the president should not be that important. No, it, it, it should not. It should be like the Queen of England. Yeah. Or or like a prime, I was thinking more like a prime like minister. A prime minister, sure. Where, you know, you, you last for as long as you're useful and then we get rid of you. That's right. It, That's it, right. This whole idea that you embody American values and you're a reflection of the innate wisdom of the American electorate. You know, that, you know, I fall, I, I fall prey to this. Like I'm rooting for Biden now. I, the guy's, sure. the guy is... He's hitting the right notes. And and because I'm a patriotic fool, I salivate over, you know, <laughs> over him. Uh, I, I want to believe that he's doing. Listen, George W. Bush. Should be frog marched before the Hague. Worst, you know, but I still have a soft spot for him. I don't, you know, I even have, there's a little part of me that finds Trump amusing. And uh, do you have that at all? Do you, or do you? Um, no, I don't. You don't find I really Trump? Don't. No, I don't find him. You don't have, you don't find any guilty pleasure watching Trump at a rally thinking. I, I actually don't. I truly do not. I will say that right after the election, I was willing to cut him a lot of slack. And I, I may have told this story, but I, 
I had written a book called God and Government, and uh, Dar Williams, the singer, uh, was performing at a big club here in, outside of Washington, and she asked me to read a piece of the book. And the book was kind of written under the uh, assumption that Hillary Clinton would be the next president. When she lost, not the you know, not the general election vote, but the electoral college vote, I decided to write another chapter and just read it at the, uh, uh, before Dar's concert. And I, I said, there are plenty of things that can be done and ought to be done. And we ought to have the Democrats be a loyal opposition. And they just never got around to doing that. They, they, let him get away with so much stuff. And now I just find him and his ideas so repulsive that maybe I, I think I would rather he be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024, because I think enough people are just disgusted with him, whether he's indicted by that point or not. Um, He's going to be a lot easier to beat than someone like Ron DeSantis, although I heard you and Emil talking about some of the polling. I mean, Charlie Crist, who used to be the governor of Florida when he was a Republican, uh, and he's changed a lot of his positions, and he's one percentage point behind DeSantis. If DeSantis can't win re-election as the governor of Florida, he will not be a tenable candidate for the Republicans as president in 2024. Hmm. There are other people, though, floating around that are uh, not, at first blush at least, completely insane, and I'm, I'd be worried about them as well. So hmm. bring on Trump for the 2024 election. And uh, let's have either Biden getting a little bit more forceful than he is or just get somebody else like, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom. Right. I mean, you, you know, I know a lot of people don't like Gavin Newsom, but you got to say, here is a guy who was so he, he came up with such a creative solution just last week about homelessness by requiring any hotels or motels in Los Angeles to take in homeless people to fill empty beds. And a lot of hotels in any major city have 35, 45% non-occupancy. And so if you want to do business in Los Angeles, you're, you have to be willing to allow homeless people into your hotels. And uh, I think that's a great idea. Yes. I do. And yes. Newsom is behind it. And uh, I, th I, think, I think he's got enough power, political power and other power to, to actually win at the Democratic nomination and win the presidency if he has a woman running with him, and if that woman isn't Kamala Harris. Right. We will, uh, let's continue this next week, if you don't mind. Where will, you, love to. will the move be done by then? We will be driving back to Massachusetts uh, Wednesday. 
okay. after signing the papers to sell this house in Washington. Okay. So I fully expect to be there on Thursday with access to a computer Fantastic. and be able to do the show. We, we create change in this world, Reverend. I started today's episode attacking Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks. I called him a union buster. I called him a fraud. And guess what? He what? Ju he just quit Starbucks. Did he really? He must have listened to the show. I'm pretty sure he did. And he thought, you know what? I am a scumbag. Yeah. I, I am a union buster. <laughs> this this has happened an hour ago. Howard Schultz, the interim leader of Starbucks, is stepping down. And on October 1st, Starbucks will have a new CEO, uh, the head of Reckitt Ben Kaiser. Uh, his name is... Laxman Narishmahan, and he is going to reinvent Starbucks. And I hope that includes recognizing the unions. Uh, Be a nice step. Good riddance. Yeah. Good riddance, Howard Schultz, you piece of human excrement, you union-busting criminal, right? If the NLRB, you're a, a lawyer, if the NLRB says... We recognize the Amazon labor union. We recognize the Starbucks workers union. And Howard Schultz refuses to go to the bargaining table with a union recognized by the NLRB. Is that a crime? Uh, ask me that again next week. I'm okay. not sure if that's a crime. I'm not sure if that's a crime. You could just say but yes. Oh, I could say yes. <laughs> I could. You could. I could say yes. You know, I, you, it, so, it's at least worthy of a, a civil fine, right? Oh, no, there certainly are civil penalties for such conduct. But right. I don't know if there's a criminal statute that would cover that. I'll look into it. All right. The Reverend Thank Barry you. W. Lynn is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ he is also a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is a, an attorney for a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for separation of church and state. And he is a brilliant writer, author, lecturer. You can read him and watch him over at BarryWLynn.com. Thank you, Reverend. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Thank you. And I hope, in all Thank honesty, you. I do look forward to uh, all of us gathering in New England. Uh, I really like that idea. Yeah. 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 I really like that idea. Okay. We should do it. But remember, you should call it FeldoCon. So okay. it's like Comic-Con. And people think that they're going to go and we're all going to be dressed yes. in uh, costumes. Yes. yes. And I, I will be dressed in a costume. Good. Yeah. And and we'll brand people's thighs. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Then you, well, that's good, but it's only good if you want to be a, a reality show on Netflix. Or Nexium. Or Nexium. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Uh, that was Bye. great. Well, it's time for the professors and Marianne, but first we have to go to 
Joe in Norway, Spain. Are you still in Spain, Joe? We missed you last week. Yes, uh, I have two more days in Spain. Two more days and in Spain. And I'll be off to France. So this is Joe in Norway and Spain. Joe schedules office hours. There is no office hours without Joe. We do 24 hours of office hours the first Friday of every month. There are some uh, openings in the schedule. Uh, prime time is all filled up, but we have plenty on through the night and into Saturday. And I understand before that uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is going to be generous enough to to teach a class in the fall at office hours. Is that correct? Oh, this is the first time hearing of it. Yeah, well, if there's interest, um, uh, I will offer the class that I'm teaching a new course uh, at the university uh, seminar. I'll just offer a version of it on office hours for whoever wants to come. It's called the Crusading Society. And it's about how medieval history matters far too much uh, to the present. Um, so the effects of crusading on the course of European history and looking at it in a wider Mediterranean, you're looking at Europe in a wider Mediterranean context and um, how this confrontation um, you know, around the Crusades uh, changed Europe and made it into a persecuting society. Hmm. And um, how that legacy in various ways is still with us. So it's about the common origins in some ways of white supremacy, um, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and how they're all interconnected in medieval history. Is it true that before the sack of Constantinople, I don't know when that was, like the 1200s, that they had John the Baptist's arm in Constantinople? That they, they had relics that dated back? Uh, yeah, they had a lot of relics. Um, some of the most important relics were in what was the Eastern Roman and Byzantine Empire. And after the Fourth Crusade sacked Constantinople and established the Latin, uh, sometimes called interregnum for Byzantine historians, but the Latin Empire. Um, the uh, new emperor was short of cash, and um, so he set about selling a lot of ransacking and selling a lot of the relics held in the Eastern Church to people um, in the Latin West, one of whom was uh, Louis the Ninth, the Saint Louis. Uh, for whom St. Louis is is named. And in fact, they actually do have a um, statue, apparently, of Louis IX uh, as a crusader. He was uh, foolish enough to go on crusade twice, uh, both times utter and complete disasters. On one, he was captured, uh, and on the other, he died. Um and But he also did buy the crown of thorns, um, which is one of the greatest relics, of course, that you could imagine is the actual crown of thorns that Jesus is held to have worn um, on uh, the cross during the crucifixion. And he built, uh, you know, Saint-Chapelle, one of the great marvels of medieval 
architecture and art with the most amazing and beautiful stained glass um, as a special chapel to house this most holy of relics uh, that he purchased for an unbelievable sum of money at the time. I think, I can't remember the exact uh, figures of the number of fl gold florins, but it was something like the income of the of the entire country for more than a year or it was, it was some astronomical sum mm. that uh, he almost mortgaged the entire kingdom in order to acquire this relic. And can we still see it or was it stolen again? Uh, actually, you know, I don't know if it's still, I, I assume, um, it's still there in Saint-Chapelle, but I didn't, I haven't followed, you know, the history of, of, of the subsequent post-medieval history of, of and the relic. And has somebody from the Antiques Roadshow examined <laughs> the crown to... Found it in a basement in, <laughs> you know, Pennsylvania. Dave and PA's got it in his, in his, <laughs> in his Airbnb. Establishing the provenance of it and what it would be worth. And, uh, and, and John the Baptist's arm was, did I? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if it was his arm, but yeah, there are definitely body parts. Uh, obviously the highest prestige is if you could have the whole body of or the uh, head. Saint, saintly person. The head is probably the next best if you can't, you know, have the whole body intact, you know, having the head, but, you know, even a finger, uh, could be, uh, wielding thaumaturgic powers. Uh, um, but you know, what's more interesting than these beliefs about the relics is, uh, the fact that there's circulated a lot of stories, uh, about thefts of relics by monks. Now you'd say, well, why in the world would they, uh, publicly retail stories about uh, monks stealing relics from one place or another. And of course, the reason why it was a way of advertising that they had the real, because sometimes there would be conflicts, you know, who really had St. Mark's, you know, body. Uh, he was known to have died in Egypt and Alexandria. Um, so how is it that Venice claims that they've got, you know, in San Marco, St. Mark's, Mark's uh, body? Well, so they would circulate a story about how the pious monks had a vision. St. Mark wanted to be, you know, liberated, um, you know, and taken to a church where he would really properly be appreciated. And so these monks, you know, had these visions that St. Mark wanted to, them to come and and rescue him and so then there would be a narrative about how they they went and they crept in and they managed to steal and get away with you know saint mark's body and this was a way of saying that we had the real the real relic in case there was conflict and of course these stories are often made up but uh i think that's kind of an interesting dimension of it is that um you had to authenticate that you had the real relics by admitting that, um, you know, it used to be somewhere, but you've managed to acquire it. Wow. All this by means fair or foul. Well, speaking of foul, let's go to Joe in Norway, who uh, all this talk about fingers and arms and bodies is making me hungry. Joe in Norway and Spain. <laughs> so what are you <laughs> preparing for us tonight. Yeah, so we only have a couple more days. So I wanted to get rid of all of the zucchini we have, which is called calabacin. 
in Spanish. Uh, so I thought I would make a few dishes. Uh, it's also people. It's the end of summer, so people probably have too much uh, summer squash. So we'll see how how many I can do here before my phone melts down. Okay. Uh, I was going to do uh, squash uh, a la plancha, which is kind of grilled. And then I was going to do a vegan version of something called gambas de pipil, which is a garlic, chili, braised shrimp dish. But since um, the squash has a similar texture to, to the shrimp, I'll, I'll do zucchini and stuff or kind of a thing. And I also have some leftover rice, which I'll make a uh, croquette with rice and and the squash and the bunuelo, which is uh, essentially a a, a savory donut okay. with squash. Normally, then, they make it with um, winter squash. And then you're in France next week. Yes, um, and you'll be torturing, reno renovating a friend's house, so we'll be switching to French cuisine next week. Oh my God! I've never seen Professor Marianne coming so happy. Uh, I'm in pain because I'm hungry, and uh, this is torture. Well, let's uh, let us go to the professors and Marianne joining us: Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Anne Lee, who writes over at the Daily Kos. And every midnight, she does an ep update on the war in Ukraine. So uh, why don't you tell us how day 190 is going, the counteroffensive. And this is the big push in southern Ukraine that they've been promoting, that the Ukrainians have been promoting. Yeah, it is. Hello, David. Hello. Um, is it Kherson? Is that the area? Kherson, yes. <clears throat> the city of Kherson. They're, uh, that's the why is that the, the like why is the but before you this feels to me like they're selling this as if they can capture Kharrison that's it for the Russians and it just feels like the Vietnam War all over again like we just have to win this one battle and then I have a feeling this is what why yeah. is Kharrison what is so important about this. Well, it, it was one of the first cities that was uh, taken in the initial invasion they, when they were spreading down uh, across from Crimea. Uh, and it uh, it was key to, to the Russian attempt to to try and take the entire south uh, coast of. Uh, of Ukraine, and they didn't get as far as they thought they would. Uh, I think the Ukrainians gave them quite a battle. And it was, of course, uh, problematic because uh, the Russians attacked on four or five or six different fronts. So uh, for the Ukrainians, this is important from a geographic point of view because uh, they want to take back at least land up to the Dnieper River. This is very important because it's the key kind of geographic division um, for, for Ukraine. And uh, I, I don't think they're necessarily overselling it, selling it as that some are. But uh, we're it's very early now. And uh, 
one would think that in some ways um, this may be the key counter counteroffensive, but I think perhaps they have a couple of other ideas uh, in mind that might be more amusing. Um, the Ukrainians are notoriously uh, quiet about their uh, activities. There's been a lot of reporting and a lot of uh, sort of military blogging, as it were, but we really sort of don't know what's going on still. It's not a full, I mean, it is an offensive and there's tremendous disinformation. I mean, the the Russians claim they killed a thousand people yesterday and that's that's pretty unbelievable. And on the other hand, there's a lot of precision um, missile attacks and artillery going on and um, uh, there's a lot of bridges getting blown up uh, as well as a lot of other things happening. So we're it's it's not clear yet what's going to happen, but it is a key objective to get the Kyrgyzstan, which is on the on the north uh, shore of the Dnieper and uh, securing that, I think, will be very, very important. And it is like a propaganda victory in that sense. Also, relative to any final settlement, uh, which I think is may happen if one assumes that the Ukrainians will get pressured to uh, to settle for, uh, you know, whatever land uh, uh, the Russians have already seized and are attempting to uh, convert to Russian. Uh, I mean, it's truly, uh, um, you know, just interesting that how imperial a, a seizure it is. You know, they're, they've got all the kids and on that side of the, the battlefield. Now all the what kids are in the cities, uh, captive cities are now going back to school and only learning Russian and they're learning nothing but Russian curricula. And this is all uh, quite disturbing on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, you know, it, it, it is what they're trying to do is to convert everyone. I mean, the, and, uh, sort of laid over that. And, and what's interesting, of course, is that the Russians are trying to make it even difficult, more difficult, um, because the IAEA is uh, uh, trying to inspect the Zapranisha uh, uh, reactor site. And uh, uh, it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of shooting going on. And the Russians uh, have been trying to sort of make it difficult to get there uh, for the inspectors. Um, it, it's, uh, it's incredibly messy, still very messy. It's going to be messy for a while, but we've got the first reporting back, which is really cool. I mean, cool in the sense we can see, uh, the difference in, in kind of tactical disposition between the two sides and, um, some of the real limitations like the troop limitations are very, very difficult. The, um, the, the, the um, um, the Russians have a brand new, uh, battalion that they've put in of, pretty much green recruits and uh they're nowhere near the battlefield yet but uh it'll be interesting to see how badly they do because they are you know conscripts and old people and a whole bunch of other strange things so that's what's happening currently and uh we, we don't have much negotiation going on but still a lot of uh, a lot of activity everybody should go to the daily Kos and read you uh, the handle is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I, -N -N -I -I, and subscribe to you on Daily Kos. I'm going to do a better job uh, getting that handle out to the listeners because your stuff is just great over at the Daily Kos. Thank you. It, it really I, is. I, it, it's encouraging because 
Ukrainians and Russians are now subscribing to it, which is quite amusing. Um, uh, uh, it, it is uh, pivoted slightly to the Russians, but I try and actually give a fair, a fair and balanced mm-hmm. presentation after wading through a ton of disinformation. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about something else you wrote, but does anybody want to ask Professor Lee a question or make a statement about progress or lack thereof in Ukraine? Well, what do you think the um, the best hope would be to uh, end this conflict? Do you um, see that? A, a, an aggressive uh, negotiation uh, activity that, that led by the UN and not by the EU. I mean, I know it's in the EU's in, uh, interest to solve this, but I think this is a moment where the UN can, as a more neutral uh, arbiter, uh, come in and negotiate. And, and what role do you see for the U.S. government? Oh, well, the U.S., this is, a you know, <laughs> I'm sorry to say this is a cash cow for the military industrial complex. I mean, this is a bad deal for anyone who is uh, anti-militarist in the United States or anywhere Um because uh, all the replacement uh, materiel is going to be U.S. We're at it. There are already reports in the Wall Street Journal that America is concerned. We're out of ammunition. We're out of missiles. This is now a national security threat. Gee, what a surprise. We've, no, we're, we're nowhere near out of stuff. And in yeah. fact, the, the counter narrative is that the Russians are running out of stuff, that they're actually that the today it. It's that uh, the Russians are going back and starting up factories of one of their old Soviet era designs for military vehicles. It's a military personnel carrier because they've run out of them. <laughs> so uh, they the current uh, estimate is that they they're down to 40 percent of their total missile inventory. So this is it's just, you know, it could all be disinformation. But how many steps well, away are are we from selling weapons to Russia? Uh, well, you know, we sort of have lots of uh, mutually agreed upon activity with them. You know, I mean, you know, they're trying to pull out of the space station, but it hasn't quite happened yet. So, it, you know, we've got a lot of stuff going on that we share. And 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 the same with, uh, you know, the Russians are still selling oil, although they did stop for a day or two to try and with Europe, but, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about something else, and it involves Trump's lawyers. You had written about that. But Gorbachev passed away. And I was wondering if everybody wanted to comment on Gorbachev and the relationship between his admonitions to the West about being more inclusive towards Russia as opposed to oppositional and the the war in Ukraine, which I think he, near the end of his life, supported. Was he somewhat supportive of Putin? I'm I'm not sure. I, I leave it to others to comment on that. My opinion on 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 him is that uh, uh, it. it he did try to shepherd a transition, however badly, and uh, uh, it's incredibly problematic. But I also know that uh, 
you know, he, he was a, uh, a reasonable international player. And I think that he tried to do uh, some things that uh, were useful, although uh, he still did represent the corruption of the Russian system in that sense, uh, considering how close he became, speaking of which, to um, initiatives included, for example, uh, the Unification Church towards the end or towards the end of his time in Russia. What, what, what do you mean? Well, they um, they actually, like they do with most retired uh, uh, politicians, uh, uh, paid for him to appear at a variety of events of their events, uh, not unlike what the Unification Church did for uh, Trump uh, a couple of months ago to do a, um, a virtual appearance. Um, similarly for uh, George W.H. Bush, who I think got $2 million for a speech. Um, so is this Reverend uh, Moon? Yes, yes. Uh, the same one, you know, the Abe <laughs> connected. And and in fact, I think the the uh, the George W.H. Bush uh, speech was in Japan um, in that context. So uh, this always happens. I mean, I think Reagan got a speech as well from from the Unification Church. So it uh, these things happen. <laughs> and and what what is the significance of that? Well, they're just buying influence. That's all. Mm-hmm. That's that they, you know. But uh, the 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 most interesting one was the um, the Reagan. I mean, the uh, Trump speech uh, of about a month or so ago. Right. Uh, it was a virtual speech. Okay, uh, fantastic, Professor Bick. What would you like to talk about? Well, David, I was listening. Uh as well as I could to uh, President Biden's uh, speech tonight about warning of uh, political extremism and specifically the uh, MAGA Republicans, make America great again Republicans, Trump followers. Uh, And one of the things he said was that um, America at its core is a democracy. And we are at risk at, of losing that. And I, I would like to say that uh, part of the reason why we are here, I think an important part of the reason why we are here, is because we have such a limited democracy. Uh, and it does not do what a democracy promises, which is to reflect and to implement the will of the majority of the population. This has slowly gotten worse, you know, since the 70s, you know, with the uh, introduction of the Powell memo and, and following that very closely has allowed the influence of money, concentrated uh, wealth to erode the amount of democracy that we actually had in this country. And, uh, you know, if people look at a system and they say, well, if this is democracy and it's giving us these outputs, these results, then maybe we don't want democracy. Maybe that's not, maybe we can do better than that. And that's a real problem, right? Because I I think that democracy is the only legitimate form of government. Uh, so 
you know, uh, President Biden needs to take that into consideration. And we need to look at our system and, and, and say, how can we make this more democratic? How can we make it reflect the will of the people? How can we make it that our government actually delivers what the American people want it to deliver? And there have been many studies that have shown that it doesn't do that. Certainly not uh, any time recently. So uh, I think that we need to be uh, mindful of that. And also when he's calling out these MAGA Republicans as semi-fascist or fascist, I think it's important to remind people what fascism is. And as I'm naming these different characteristics, what people should do is to think in their head, does the majority of uh, people in the Republican Party, do they support these sorts of positions? The first one that is uh, a typical characteristic of fascism is a rejection of democracy. Yes. They're up, yeah. The Republicans up, reject democracy. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they reject an election that uh, is very clear who won that election. It was Biden. It was not Trump. And um, they have contempt for the process and and for the institutions that are supposed to uh, bring us democracy. Compromise. Com well, compromise, uh, elections, the idea that everyone should be uh, a participant in an election, in a democratic polity. Uh, they continually want to restrict who is able to exercise the vote. So, I, yes, I would check that one off and say that uh, MAGA Republicans uh, reject democracy or, or at least. You know, and would you say Democrats are more uh, amenable to more people voting? I know they try to get Bernie off the ballot in some primaries and caucuses. But overall, would you say that Democrats I know they try to get the Green Party off some, but overall, do the Democrats prefer? So I, yeah, I, I would say yes and no. Uh, I think the Democrats generally are for laws that make it easier for people to exercise the right to vote. Uh, however, they, uh, you know, they are aligned with the Republicans in that they do not want any competition. Right. They're very happy to have the Democrat. Yes. The Democratic and Republican parties only. True that. Yep. And that's a big problem. Yes. Uh, and many of them oppose, many Democrats oppose, um, if not if formally oppose it, they, they would likely vote against um, ranked choice voting, which would make it uh, easier for third parties to challenge the two-party duopoly. Um, so it's a sort of a mixed bag with the Democrats. Uh, and they've, you know, they are taking a lot of money from corporations and moneyed interests. You know, this is very troubling. Okay, that, what, what is the next Yeah, the next one. So uh, fascism rejects socialism, trade unionism, and fen feminism. 
you know, the Republican Party's always claiming that pe- anyone on the left of, uh, of the right <laughs> is a socialist or a communist. Um, and it, uh, usually these charges are ludicrous, um, but they, they see socialism as something evil. Uh, trade unionism, they are against unions. I mean, that's not even debatable. They hate unions because it actually gives people some amount of power that they can exercise against the, the uh, immense power of the bosses and of uh, corporations. They oppose uh, feminism. They don't think that women should have a right to control their own bodies or their own reproduction. So all of those are consistent with the uh, Republican Party. And issues of sexual assault and rape. Absolutely. I mean, these are... And birth control. And and who you who you can marry, you know, uh, they they want a very invasive state when it comes to the uh, most uh, private parts of of human life. Right. Um, fascism uh, also glorifies war. It's militaristic, and it approves of violence. And as you can see, at January sixth. Uh, you know, a, a large, a significant plurality of Republicans supported that. Um, militarism, you know, you, you must uh, defend the troops no matter what they're doing. If, you know, if they're overthrowing democracy, you've got to support them because there are troops. Now, this is fascism as de- uh, d- defined by Mussolini. These are uh, so I, I did an analysis of different definitions of fascism, and I kind of pulled the ones that were uh, consistent across these different definitions. OK, so these are characteristics that are, you know, typical of fascists, uh, fascist parties, et cetera, regimes. Right. And, and fascism did start with Mussolini. Is that still uh, again, you know, it can be debated, uh, you know, was uh, Rome fascist? Uh, oh, the that's fascia. where we get the, yeah. the fascist, you know, yeah. that symbol from. Um, they did but, have a dictate. Rome, even during the Republic, had dictators. Yeah, Rome was, yeah, even during the Republic was not all that democratic. Um, but uh, it's certainly modern fascism. Uh, many people say, yeah, it began with Mussolini. Uh, another characteristic is extreme nationalism. And do you see this uh, among uh, MAGA Republicans? You know, America first. Uh, we, we should be able to do whatever we want in the world. Because mm-hmm. we're the best. We're an exceptional country. Uh, racism. Uh, I mean, I don't think I have to comment on that. Um, I anti- remember George W. Bush calling it the homeland, homeland security. And I, I remember thinking, hello, what? Ah, this doesn't sound good. Homeland? Uh, yes. Uh, after the fatherland, that was the most common term that the Third Reich used to describe Germany was the Heimat, the homeland. Really? Yes. Um uh, Anti-immigration is another characteristic of fascism. Again, you know, 
you, these caravans supposedly coming up from You know uh, what? You stole my French fries. I forgive <laughs> you now. Okay. I forgive you for stealing my French. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Go on. Um, yeah, so anti-immigration, right? So they're saying that uh, the problems in America can be traced to immigration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the people with no power, the people with no wealth, the people who are most vulnerable in our country, those are the people who are making uh, the decisions in this country, right? Not not the powerful people that sit on top with, with billions of dollars and in the heads of corporations, not them. No, it's it's immigrants that have just arrived in this country. It's, it's ludicrous, but that is their argument. Um, other um, aspects of fascism, regressive and so-called traditional social policies. And again, this goes to, uh, you know, no right to privacy, um, uh, no abortion, no uh, contraception, that, you know, the state has a greater interest in deciding who has control over reproduction than the individual does and eugenics. Yes. And Lee, indeed. Right. So, uh, these are some bad dudes, right? Fascism is, is the pretty much the worst, uh, ideology that we've come up with, uh, as a species. And, uh, Biden is right to call it out. And it, he's right to point out that the, Republican Party is dominated by this ideology. Fantastic. Mm. Really great. Any anybody want to comment on that? Great. Just that that should be heard by everybody in America, which you just did. Quick point. I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion here, but um, I tried to listen to it, too. while I was listening to the show, it was a little bit difficult since it sounded very much like uh, his campaign speech, uh, you know, for the soul of America. And perhaps that's the real point here is that his numbers are recovering and perhaps some of the pressure on him uh, potentially to step down because there were going to be big losses in the midterms and he was going to be this real lame duck. Um Maybe those are starting to subside and he's found that uh, and maybe believes the NBC uh, poll that said the major concern of Americans was uh, the biggest concern, uh, politically speaking, was, uh, you know, threats to democracy. Although jobs uh, and the economy uh, together were far above uh, threats to democracy, but they were considered separate and not related to one another. So um, that's one element of it. But what I wish he would have done is not invent this new political category of MAGA Republicans that we've never, you know, had uh, votes for, is not constituted as a separate party, but actually tied the entire Republican Party for the last 20 years with the Tea Party and, um, you know, these movements, he's giving an alibi for quite a number of people to come in and like, uh, you know, Liz Cheney and others to come over because they're good Republicans. They're not the MAGA Republicans as if, you know, they would vote 
in any way different from the rest of these, you know, uh, Republicans. And I just find that really problematic. Why doesn't he tie the entire Republican Party for the past two decades? Well, there's a reason why he can't. Is because they have embraced those neocons. They've taken many of them in. They're willing to accept, you know, Liz Cheney in their ranks. And that's because the policies don't change that much. You know, Bush already was on the path of this fascistic orientation. We just talked about the Homeland Security bill, uh, you know, the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. He's now fed it in the, in the, you know, Democratic Party. Um, Compassionate so, conservatism. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm very disturbed by even in their own political terms, you are not going to win by playing it this way without giving the full critique and without tying the entire party, you know, to this fascistic uh, move and, and orientation. So I don't think this is going to be that successful um, as a gambit. Well, I, I, I just want to say, I agree a hundred percent. He should have done that because there is really no difference between the MAGA Republicans and the rest of the politicians in the Republican party and much of the, people that vote for them. So uh, that's an excellent point. He, he also said, which he should not have said, uh, I know there are uh, reasonable people in the Republican Party. Uh, I've worked with them. Well, w- recently, Joe, uh, was this 40 years ago? Um, yeah. So no, you're 100%. Uh, I want right. to get Professor, oh. go ahead. All he had to do was mention the 147 who from January 6th. If he had just mentioned that in the speech, it would have drawn the damn line. He didn't do that. It really irritates me from a speechwriting point of view that that he didn't start drawing those kinds of lines. I understand he was trying to do it in a more metaphorical and euphemistic way, but um, he just didn't because he should have sank all that 147, some of most of whom are running for reelection. These are the ones who voted not to certify the election. Right. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Marianne. No, no. P- uh, Professor Marianne. Yeah, I've been having some connectivity issues ever since the big storm a few days ago, Bluthier. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I just can't get overexcited when the line is between Republicans and Democrats in this country. I just can't. I mean, you know, we have, we, yes, we do have Democrats making an issue of, of Republican voter, of Republican voter suppression uh, issues, and the, especially in the general, but they basically stole an election from Bernie Sanders twice. I mean, like Greg Palast wrote how the state of California blatantly stole hundreds of thousands of votes from Bernie Sanders in both the 2016 and 2020 primary. He won the 2000 primary, but, you know, and this North Carolina business is just utterly insane. I mean, the Green Party candidate is on the ballot. He might be getting, 
he probably get about one percent normally. They might he might get more because of the crap that the Democratic Party threw at him. And you know, it's just finally the courts ruled that the Green Party is to, is on the ballot, and the Green Party will be on the ballot. But the Democratic Party of North Carolina is still taking it to the federal courts. And what is their big argument? Just take a guess. Voter fraud. Really? They're concerned with voter fraud. Really? Just like it's an insane, ludicrous charge that, you know, maybe a few people a year get caught voting in the wrong precinct, largely because, you know, the precincts changed or they, you know, they didn't know. But it's. It's something that we have made fun of Republicans because they have charged this in the general most of the time. Is this the so, Senate race? The, uh, uh, is this Betsy? This is the Senate race. Uh, this fellow Ho is the he's uh, the Green Party guy running for uh, running for U.S. Senate. And it's likely, as usual, that the libertarian that's running for Senate is is probably going to get twice the votes that the Green Party, you know, like the 2% of the Green Party's 1%. But if the Democrats do crap like this, you know, you you get a lot of, you've got a lot of disaffected young people who were having, you know, whose hopes were really raised uh, for the Biden administration that may, like, I think, largely sit out, you know, um, this time around. But um you know, it's it's like when you when you keep doing this, I, I was just rereading, by the way, when we're talking about Democrats and Republicans and fascism, I was rereading a um, an article or uh, rather a letter that was sent by um, Max Rose to the Honorable Secretary Mike Pompeo um, asking why. The, and this is in October of 2019, not even three years ago. He was the Democratic congressman from Staten Island. Yes. Why we why the State Department has failed to include certain overseas violent white supremacist extremist groups on the foreign terrorist organization list. And of course, they go through various incidents at that point, including the uh, Christchurch, New Zealand shooting, which got a lot of press. And he says, as you know, the State Department's criteria for inclusion on the terrorist lists are simple. Be a foreign organization, engage in, in or retain the capacity to and intend to engage in terrorism, threaten the security of the U.S. nationals or the national defense, foreign relations, or the economic interest in the United States. And they go on to list numerous examples, but then they pick out one in particular. You know where this is going, Right. For example, the Azov Battalion is a well-known ultra-nationalist militia organization in Ukraine that openly welcomes neo-Nazis into its ranks. The group is so well-known, in fact, that the 115th Congress of the United States stated in its 2018 omnibus spending bill that none of the funds made available by this act may be used to provide arms, training, or other assistance to the Azov Battalion. Well, now we know by reporting, uh, particularly from Jacobin, uh, Marcetto Brasovic, uh, that the CIA had been training Azov Battalion and other battalions all along. Uh, despite these facts, Azov has been recruiting, radicalizing, and training American citizens for years, according to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Well, who signed this bill? Lots of people noted, like 40 Democrats, including Ro Khanna. 
So suddenly, you know, we're all okay with this. And this distresses me, not because Russia isn't a country to be concerned with, because we don't seem to have any principles in our foreign policy whatsoever. And we certainly do not have any, like, any part of our national security state or our government pushing pushing negotiations or diplomacy at all. I mean, it's in terms of like leaks uh, from our government to the national press that counter the prevailing narrative, they've almost all come from the defense departments, defense contractors, defense department sources, and so on. You know, so it's, it's just very distressing. Not a single, not a single progressive in the Congress is like stepping back and saying, you know, maybe asking what are we doing to have provoked this situation? And it's Noam Chomsky is now once again, pissing off liberals. <laughs> Not that he's excusing Russia at all, but that he's basically describing how we got to this point and it's not making liberals very happy. Oh, I see there's a hand raised by Professor Adnan. Well, I want you to finish your point, Marianne. I don't want to interrupt. No, but the, I mean, that's basically what I was saying. We don't have the only person in Congress that had any resistance to any of this was Rand Paul, who made a very lame ass, you know, uh, 11th hour kind of uh, hold up to at least ask for some accountability, which we're not getting. I was uh, reading a New York Times article that was kind of misleading in its title. It's As usual with these articles, you have to go to like paragraph 20 before you find mm-hmm. the real meat of the, uh, of the article. And they're talking about how American arms have made a difference, except that the Ukraine battalions, the people in the Ukraine battalion they were talking to said that they were having to resupply from stuff they've picked up on the battlefield that was abandoned by the Russians and have explicitly said, literally, I counted, I think it was paragraph 23 of this article two days ago in the New York Times, that they haven't seen any of this, you know, promised weaponry and they're on the front lines. So where is it? You know, it's like the the idea that we not only fund a war with no with no dissenting voices, we do it without any accountability at all where any of this stuff is going, except that we now know because we have read since July, since early July, the head of Interpol has been, you know, expressing extreme concern over things being like auctioned off on the dark web that appear to be some of this weaponry. Um, You know, there was articles about a month or so ago that uh, a HIMARS, one of these, you know, advanced launch vehicles, was actually sold to the Russians through Ukrainian channels. Um, That was that there was a lot of nothing in the U.S. press, but uh, some in France and in Germany. Within a week, NPR came out with this article which was, again, countering the narrative about the problem with the corruption in Ukraine, you know, which I guess was kind of, you know, sort of preparing people for, you know, eventual narrative if they have to use it that, oh, gee, things weren't going the way we thought and they need to blame 
the current Ukraine government. It's it's obviously corruption. And then we continue on. But I think something that uh, Professor An Lee said earlier on, this is a bonanza for the defense contractors. You know, it's so I look at just about anything from any side of this war as just a PR for, you know, more weapons sales. And the American, you know, Americans don't really know, don't really care. I think many people get kind of bored with war when it's not obviously that's one side is winning and winning decisively. Um, Yeah, it's just it's very disturbing to me. And in the meantime, you know, the the Europeans, Western Europeans are going to be facing a very difficult winter because we've disrupted sales. I mean, the the BRICS coalition that would be, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa is like three times the size of the G7. Now, that might be a good sign for the world in that things tend to be better when the world isn't a unipolar world, but there are competing elites. I think I came up with that phrase even in high school that, yeah, the elites have always run this country. We've never really been a democracy. But as long as there are competing elites, you know, us peons down in the lower ranks, you know, have a chance, you know, we get to like, you know, benefit because there, there is like not, unanimity among our, you know, overlords, but, you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's depressing that in this country, we don't even have high level politicians seriously talking about peace, about conflict resolution, people giving serious intellectual thought about this. I swear to God, I, I, I don't think the people in the state department are very bright at this point. Or they know exactly what they're doing. And yeah, they know exactly what they're doing and what they're doing isn't, you know, the, uh, they the propaganda were, that they put out. We've taught West exec. It's all West exec executives working for Professor Hussein. You wanted to say something? Oh, well, I just I, I think we've gone a field of, of um, you know, my points, which was just to come back to looking because I, I don't really tend to uh, think um, that you can expect a lot of reasonableness when it comes to foreign policy. That's a bipartisan era area for what I consider irrationality and immorality. So, but if I'm talking, if we're talking about um, the problem with confronting fascism, I do agree that it is of international and transnational proportion. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, those affiliations and um, the vision that may maybe underlies, um, you know, these uh, far right groups, ultranationalist groups domestically and abroad. Um, but if we're thinking about just even in the narrow political space of the domestic, uh, you know, of domestic politics, um it just seems to me that um this isn't a winning program they may think that they're going to win on this but i think these who, who, concerns who, who, who uh biden's biden's approach oh, giving okay. this speech to try and uh, talk about the specter of fascism without talking about the underlying conditions that are producing 
you know, this distrust of elite institutions, the, you know, disaffection, the economic dislocation, the, you know, fact that people don't believe in the experts anymore, all of these things, these are concerns that are more elite concerns about protecting their privileged space within the American hierarchy. And so it's not communicating to the wider public in such a way, you know, it's empty rhetoric to say, uh, I'm not a president for red America and blue America, trying to channel, you know, Obama's line from his, you know, uh, run when, you know, people were uh, open to that kind of supposed nonpartisanship. This was a completely partisan speech, except that it failed to really do, I think, good work in turn in narrow partisan terms because it wasn't able to tie the entire you know Republican Party to this. That's how you you know win in narrow partisan terms. But he's also avoiding the bigger question and the bigger problems. It seems to me. Why are there so many MAGA Republicans among the people out there? Confront that. Let's talk about that. That would be a genuine conversation getting beyond partisanship to say, I'm the president for everybody and I care about everybody in this country. Now, there are some people who hate me. There are some people who have manufactured all of these conspiracies. But let's like get to the heart of the issue. So, you know, if he had come in with not we have to defend democracy, but if he had, you know, come with a more, you know, expansive program, we need to extend democracy. The answer here is we need to extend democracy. We need to reform these institutions. They haven't been working for people. The Supreme Court right now is the time to attack the Supreme Court as an undemocratic institution. But he believes in this system too right. much. He's not willing to do it. Attack the Senate. The fact, hey, we believe in majority rule because, all you know, you take the phrase, you know, he started his speech with saying, I'm here on sacred ground at the, you know, uh, Independence Hall, where, you know, these were, you know, all of us are created equal in the principle of equality. If you believe in the principle of equality, then say people's votes should be equal. We need to protect the franchise. And we have undemocratic institutions from the history of the founding of this country, where there were property rights that excluded many people. Women were not able to vote. It has been a struggle. We're now facing a new struggle. And that means we have to radically expand democracy. We got to refound our nation on democratic principles. If he did this, he'd be courageously attacking the basis, you know, of the problem. And in a much more honest way, that would be actually inspiring. Instead, he's trying to make his rhetoric sound inspiring about the soul of America. It's a way of not running on anything. That's what he ran on in, in, for 2020 is basically Bernie had an agenda. He needed to shift the focus away from actually running on any policies that would matter for people. So he talked about Charlottesville, which exactly. I mean, of course, we hate what was being propounded there in Charlottesville. We hate that racism. It's dangerous. But that was a way to avoid actually saying we need changes in this country. So I think this is all wrong. I think he's did good things with this debt. You know, I think that's a smart move politically. 
um, well-timed. It's not appropriate. It's not what I want in policy terms, but that's smart. So forget about what I want. You want to win? That's how you win. You do something for people. You do it at the right time politically to make hay from it. And and then you can win. So let's talk about that. He should be talking about you need. I wanted to do more. But that's all I can do right now. If you give me a majority, a real majority in both houses, then I will do this. I will do that. But I don't think he he doesn't really plan to do that. So I think that's the problem. Do you think there's an element of his trying to purify the Republican Party that he's sitting in the situation room hearing reports of this crazed contingent in the, the, the Trump supporters and how dangerous they are? Is he trying to rebuild the Republican Party because he fears that it, this whole thing? Could- I don't know if he has, the, you know, very ambitious political goals here. I think the like, like I said, I framed my comments. This sounded like a campaign speech. It didn't sound to me like a serious encounter with the ills troubling America and the real state of our democracy it sounded very much like a partisan political speech. And I think it's misjudged. So I don't know if he really even has some grand goals. I, you know, other than I think politically it's a favorable situation that looked like it was horrible. Like a few months ago, it looked terrible for him and for the democratic party. A few um, uh, strategic moves, a good, you know, debt relief, you know, not a really great bill, you know, but uh, not a great move, um, but at least something in the right time. These are, you know, there's a re- little bit of a recovery. And um, I think that's what ex- what is explaining this is that the, the um, Democratic Party elite senses that there are two issues that are helping them. You know, one, I think they're exaggerating, which is this defending democracy thing. I think they're exaggerating the the, the value of it in the way that they're doing it. Uh, if they were talking about, you know, uh, uh, Harvey J.K.'s Economic Bill of Rights as a way of extending democracy, you know, then we're, we're happening. If they're talking about reforming these institutions and refounding our democracy, okay, great. But the way they're doing it, I think they're exaggerating the value of this. The other the other issue is, you know, women's right to choose and privacy rights. That is clearly galvanizing uh, the electorate. Uh, So, you know, uh, I think they're kind of working with this. That's part of the the reason why there's been a bit of a recovery is there's panic on these on these fronts. Um, What I really wish is that they would really build momentum by adding that third economic and social policy and be aggressive with that. Then I think we might actually have a, a different political calculus going on. Um, right. Instead, I think there will be some marginal gains. It won't be as bad as they feared. There might even be some, you know, benefits. Uh, but then it's going to be business as usual. Well, our time is up. This was great. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I was listening to Guerrilla History 
everybody should listen to Guerrilla History, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. Thank you, sir. Professor Marianne Cummings is Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, as well as a particle physicist. Professor Ann Lee should be read over at the Daily Co's every day. Her handle is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. And uh, so much to talk about with you about that. And Professor Jonathan Bick will be teaching The Twilight Zone and Star Trek at Office Hours. He does it every week. Office Hours and Hours. Thank you all. Very stimulating conversation. And... Uh, but not enough to get my mind off what Joe in Norway and Spain has been cooking. And he does it exactly in an hour. Show it. I have a question, Joe. Yes. Sure. How much olive oil did you pour into the pot there? Um, it was leftover olive oil I've been cooking with. So oh, um, you can reuse olive you're oil? You're using it uh, for a few, few times. So this you kind of bring to the table when it's bubbling and you pick out the, the, the food from it instead of eating all of the oil. So you, but you can soak up the oil with the bread mm. because it's a, it's a very spicy, garlicky um, flavor. So this is the braised uh, zucchini or calabacin, the zucchini squash. These are... Uh, rice balls with uh, summer squash and a a uh, saffron. Uh, uh, what do we have, Professor Anley? You have a question, uh, Professor Anley? You have a question about the food? Oh, I, I was uh, salivating too much and hit the wrong button. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is and. And these ones are little donuts. They're like savory donuts called buñuelos. So normally you, you do it with a fermented batter. Right. So you could use sourdough or whatnot. Mm. Yeah. And I, I had some, I was grilling some zucchini. These ones were too thin, so they didn't come out too well. They're more like zucchini chips. So this, once they're finished, they'll, they'll steam. Uh, they're still firm. You can salt them, put oil on them, vinegar, whatnot. They're nice and tasty treat. You bastard. Several ways to get rid of all of that summer squash in the garden. Fantastic. And are there any openings for office hours and hours? Uh, yes, all through the middle of the night and into some Saturday evening, I believe. There's there's some Saturday afternoon and okay. evening. Okay. Everybody should go to my website to sign up for office hours. Thank you, Joe in Norway. Very painful. We'll see you this weekend. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Well, it's time for Minsky and Kay. Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of FDR on Democracy. And uh, I had an interesting lunch with him, which I'll tell Alan Minsky about. Alan Minsky executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. I want to ask you about Biden's speech, if you saw it. I just want to tell you, you know. I, I saw it. Okay, my ego. I saw it just, oh, sorry. 
Yeah, yeah I, read so, I just read a summary of it. Okay, so my ego uh, is shattered. And I had lunch with Professor Harvey J.K. And we were walking the streets of New York catching up. And the, I made the mistake of asking him about Bill Moyers, Norman Lear. And he regaled me in a, a story of his success and I'm sinking into a depression. I'm nothing. And then from the back, as we're walking, he gets recognized by the sound of his voice, Alan, a fan of Professor Harvey J.K. near Washington Square Park, says, are you Harvey J.K.? Oh, my God, I can't believe it. And he's, I'm a biggest fan. I buy all your books. I listen to you on all these podcasts. And our Professor K goes, well, this is David Feldman. The guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Professor Harvey <laughs> just goes on and on and on. And uh, I do want you to know that I got an email this afternoon from him. Yes. From that fellow. And uh, he thanked me for introducing him to my friend. Oh, so I told him he should try to catch the show tonight. I don't know if he was going to do it or not. I should look in the very magnanimous. I, I believe that's called noblesse oblige is what uh, they used to say in feudal times. All right, uh, Professor Harvey J.K., it's great to see you. And I quoted you extensively at the top of the show. Oh, that's about, really sweet. Yeah, uh, because you're right. If you're not talking about labor and democracy, you're not talking about anything. Our president spoke today, Independence Hall, about a crisis within the Republican Party. Did he do what has to be done, not to win the midterms, but for our country? Just, just so I know, David, uh, so, let me just ask Alan, because I'm going to answer you. I just want to, Alan, did you also see it or... Did, I just I just read a summary of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, for, in his favor, he spoke with more with more spirit than people probably expect of him. Okay. Uh, the, the, and this and what he said was, you know, again to be expected. I, he didn't. I don't think he used the word fascist tonight, by the way, or semi-fascist. Minor thing, but he was. I mean, he's clearly pointing a finger in certain directions. You know, if you're going to speak in Independence Hall and you're going to offer a narrative of American history, which is what he did early on in the speech, and you're talking about a crisis of democracy and the imperative of, I mean, you know, saving the democracy or redeeming it from, from the crisis, it might have helped to talk about the fact, and I've said this many times, to talk about the fact that when democracy, when, when American democracy, however inadequate it has been, is confronted with mortal crises, the way Americans have transcended it, working people in particular, is by radically enhancing it. And there was no sense, there was no, there was no real sense other than, you know, mere rhetoric that there's any kind of imperative. I mean, ultimately, you got to go vote, right? You got to go vote. I mean, yeah, well, you know, yeah, go vote, right? 
But it just, there was no real, it, it, he could have said so many things. For example, you mentioned my constant reference to labor. He might have talked about the ways in which we have civic associations and economic organizations that are fundamental to cultivating a democratic spirit, a democratic ethos. And perhaps uh, perhaps people really ought to be looking into joining a union in, 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 in Alan's favor, you know, going and checking out Progressive Democrats of America, things like that. OK, give people an action, give people a direction and let them know that the way in which democracy has been saved is not by merely defending it, but radically enhancing it. Now, I know we can't expect Biden to talk about radicalism, but he could have found a way around the word radical, perhaps. OK, I mean, so, you know, yeah, it was it was fine. It's not going to be historic in any way. And I don't know what difference it'll make. You can't tell people how to think. You have to tell them how to act. Yeah. Or encourage them to do so right. by by grabbing hold of history to encourage them. Right. To do so. Alan? Yeah. I mean, just looking through it, of course, I, I heard Adnan's truth. Do you mind leaning uh, into uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sheryl Sandberg for us and yeah, yeah, I gotta get my old mic set up. I also in a room with an air conditioner. It's blazing hot out here, by the way, in Los Angeles. There's a heat dome that's come over the metropolitan area, and it doesn't get below 80 degrees, which is extremely rare out here. It's very oh, is, hot. Is that the, is that the what's it called? Climate something that yeah, we've been hearing about? Yeah. Uh, you don't worry about it. So climate, um, it's yeah, I, I heard Adam talking. You know, I've been involved in these this effort to try to, you know. How, how, how should progressives approach the midterms? Why should they vote Democratic? And my idea is that they should basically like a contract with America kind of structure. We're not there yet where what we really should be doing is having a contract with America for 21st century economic bill of rights and uh, addressing, oh, yeah, the climate emergency, that thing, David. And um, But we have these two very important issues that the Democratic Party has a pretty pretty broad consensus on, which is to... Uh, support and tighten the operation of elections and democracy in America. And so there was the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that they couldn't get the votes to pass because they would need to have a filibuster carve out. So they should say to the American people, and this has been my, my talking point, they give us 52 senators, give us a House majority, and we guarantee you'll codify Roe versus Wade in the legislature, and we will pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and we will, um, there's other electoral aspects to what was called the For the People Act. Make so solid things, promises. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what you guys were just hinting at and exactly what Adnan was getting to, too, which is, you know, it, it acknowledges the flaws in the um, in the current system, of course, and we need to improve it by doing these things. They're very rational things that make the democracy, the electoral process stronger. But, of course, these are the very things that Republicans are undermining, um, of course, secures the fact that the, the electoral college votes will go to the the person who receives the most in the popular vote, nothing the state legislatures can do to overturn it, all those kind of things. And in fact, it, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, one of the reasons it came out as late as it did is because the guy who drafted it, uh, Representative Sewell's office, they were tracking all the things the Republicans were doing across the country, and it was going to shoot down everyone. So really tighten and strengthen democracy, which should be, of course, a big blow to the MAGA movement, just trying to do the opposite. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't expect Joe Biden to do what Adnan was talking about. Um Look, the cause, I would probably say the, the, the reason that we have a rebellion uh, to the degree we do against the political center is because the Democratic Party um, 
basically cried uncle and joined in with Reaganism around 1992, at which point we didn't really have, we had a sort of two-party consensus against the average uh, average person in the society, and people began to lose faith in democracy. And on the right wing, they just take that and run with it, because you have such an oligarchic economic structure, they just you know, throw out the democracy and have the oligarchs rule and corrode it. So he's not going to provide that critique because the Democrats have been complicit in it over the past few decades. But what we can do is counter to that, strengthen the operation of the democracy through passing those things. There's a commitment to pass those things if we get 52 senators in the House majority. And the same thing with choice. Other than that, you know, um, there are not that many points where the progressives can be motivated to vote. But those are two huge things, you know, securing the democracy against what is, after all, sort of an international trend for the right wing to really attack the structures of democracy. By the way, of course, we're going to see that. There's a lot of anticipation we may see something really dramatic come out of Brazil if Bolsonaro loses the election this fall to Lula. Most people seem to believe that Bolsonaro will not give up power to Lula readily. So that's a major country will play out. We've seen a number of countries around the world where you have democratic structures in place, but the authoritarian leader has been able to consolidate and corrode democracy once they're elected. And Trump is really setting out to do that. And the Republican Party was following him. So you know, let's let's negate that by winning this election. It's a good thing, good reason to, you know, get 52 senators and support the Democratic majority. Um, yeah, um, yeah. So, but you know, uh, Harvey, did you hear Adnan's critique in the last? No, I, I came in at literally 9:01 or something like that. Yeah, someone who heard the speech. What I read in the summary is there was a lot of electioneering in it, and um, there and was also, a lot of electioneering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, in the second half of the speech, he starts talking about the Democrats' accomplishment. So that really, you know, plays into the Republicans' hands are going to critique the speech. But also, um, why it was a special presidential speech. I thought they coordinated, made sure it got onto the networks. Apparently, none of the three old networks ran it. They didn't run it. Mm-hmm. It's just like CNN and MSNBC, Fox, of course, didn't run it. Well, because it was a political speech and not a presidential speech. Something, I don't know. I think had it been yeah. a presidential yeah. speech, they yeah. would have to run it. Yeah. So it was it's also interesting, you know, in previous years of pre- in previous administrations, maybe even years, I remember that I could go online. And so I'm not talking about ancient history necessarily, but I go online and find the speech tech, the text, the transcript right. pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, once upon a time, the likes of The New York Times, and The Washington Post actually ran the transcript in the papers. They're not going to do that any longer because they don't have to. They can do it online. I couldn't get the transcript. I went to all the sites. There was no nothing there. I went to the White House site. I couldn't get it. But I lit. I had heard the the entire speech, Um, so I I knew what he had had said. Again, so my comments are not. So here's what I'm trying to divine. Uh, So we've we've made a qualitative judgment. It, It falls short. We've heard what he should have done. What do you think he's thinking? What do you think he's been told by his advisors? What is he afraid of? As president of the United States, what is he saying? What is he fearing? And what is he trying to accomplish? Taking out the electioneering and the politics, because I still think he is the president and he has a sense of responsibility, as addled as he is. 
I, I, I genuinely believe like like Obama and Bill Clinton, as deeply flawed and nefarious as they were, they thought of themselves as re, re, responsible stewards of the executive branch. I think Biden fancies himself a responsible steward of the executive branch. Uh, what do well, you? Well, the speech was cheerleading, but at a time, but you, you can't. We can't just have cheerleading. You can't just tell people Americans can do whatever they set themselves to. You know, can accomplish whatever they set themselves to do. That this is not the end of an era. This is the beginning of an era. These are the kind of things he said. I, I'm sorry, I missed Adnan's remarks um, on this. And I, you know, it's just. I'm. I'm. Let's put it this way. I didn't expect him to do what I what I hoped he would do. So, you know, where are we going to go? I mean, is the Republican. When it, I think you and I mentioned to each other the other day. The, the problem is that these Democrats are unwilling to point their finger and target the, the enemy, the antagonists, those who are literally crushing American democracy. And who is that? Well, it's it's it's, the you know, it's the billionaires. I mean, Bernie may have been over and overly. And that's the only word he seemed to know, Bernie. He, you know, often it seemed. But it, but it, but he at least and that's probably one of the reasons that he garnered the kind of enthusiastic support he did. He was calling out those who were literally crushing American democratic life. OK, but what I agree with you. Yeah, I know. Right. But I, what I'm asking is what needle does he think he's threading? Because mm -hmm. I have a I. I figure he sits in the Oval Office and when he's awake and paying attention, he is being told horrible things about the Republican Party and that we have to do something now to nip it in the bud or it's too late and to me, and I didn't hear the speech, but I've been reading some excerpts and hearing from people. It seems like he's offering an exit ramp for Republicans to cut ties to, to Trump and to go back to being the loyal opposition, because right now they are the disloyal opposition. For him to declare total war as commander in chief, as president of the United States, not as a, a candidate, he doesn't want to do, uh, wage total war on the Republican Party. He as he has a responsibility for to uphold the two party system, which we find abhorrent. But he believes in the two party system. Yeah. He needs to prop up the other side and say. Shed yourself of MAGA, shed yourself of Trump and go back to what you once were. Wasn't he kind of he, did, he was definitely doing that tonight? Well, he, he definitely was because he he, re, he reiterated the same kinds of things of, you know, he's worked with the Republicans in the past. You know, they're he knows there are those Republicans there. And by the way, to go to, to Alan's remarks a little while ago, if I'm not mistaken, the folks in the Senate are getting rather optimistic that they can that they've got a certain number of Republican votes to make sure that they can enact this new initiative. This uh, sort of well, what kind of initiative? What's the title of the of this initiative? Well, wait. I mean, are you referring to the side deal that Manchin wants to pass around the climate uh, permit? No, not the climate stuff. I thought there's something this this electoral 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the electoral that's reform. That, that, that's that is, I think, about the, the the fact that the popular vote will determine who the electors. Yeah, are. those kinds that's of things. Right. And, that, that's and, uh, has apparently has sixty votes now in the, in the Senate. Yeah, which mm-hmm. which is a major. What, what shift is this? For, for ten Republicans or eight, whatever the number. That's what a big this? shift. What, I mean, what is considering this? what we've seen for the last. Um, it was. It was. It was. They determined they had sixty votes today. On it. I'll get you the name of it. Are you talking about the Electoral Reform Act, or yeah, yeah, yeah? yeah I guess that's what it but is. But that's yeah. not to get rid of the Electoral College. Hmm. No, no, it's to, it's to guarantee that the votes uh, is determined by popular vote. You're talking about the compact, the state compact, or in the Senate they're going to. Um, hold on. This is a, this is a bill that. Um, this is in the Senate, I believe. And it's, I mean, Grassley, I understand, is now signed on to it. Where the popular vote would trump the electoral vote? That, that they can't no, change. No, the popular yeah. vote in, in each state. The Electoral Count Reform Act. Um, oh, okay. Um, so that the state legislatures couldn't elect mm-hmm. their own slate and bring them to Washington. This is And up. indeed, that I, that I saw something this evening before I came on, or before I listened to the speech, that it said... And at first I thought, what? But it's the vice president cannot change the. Uh, right. 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 Cannot change the vote. Right. This yeah. is an update of the uh, Electoral Reform Act after uh, Hayes Tilden. Right. Right. Exactly. After 18, 1887. Right. Yeah. And so they're just going to codify into law what we always thought was the law. Correct. From Susan Collins and other people. Right. Well, that, but that that's that's good, uh, which begs the question, why is Merrick Garland pursuing uh, this attempt to uh, to prosecute people who uh, wanted to present their own slate of electors if we're not sure that's an absolute crime? Well, See? this will. Oh, sorry. One of the things I saw in it is that there will only be one slate of electors. Right. We. Yeah. Right. But. It, it implies that Eastman might have been well within his right as an attorney to suggest that Wisconsin could offer up its own separate slate of electors without it being a crime. But it looks like Garland seems to be building a case against uh, the, the people who conspired to bring in separate electors. Uh, okay. What do we have to look forward to election-wise, Alan? Were you shocked by Sarah Palin's defeat last night? Um, yeah, I'm a little confused by it um, in terms of the role that the instant runoff voting played in it. Um, but um, it's a good result. There's no doubt. Um, it's nice to see. Um, I think it probably had a lot to do with I think probably divisions within the Republican Party as to why the Republicans, I think, got the most first place votes, but she was able to pass over. That's the, the fifth special election in a row where the Democrats did better than Biden in 2020. Right. Did much better and, and much better, but still um, it was because I think certain Republicans were unwilling to put the other Republicans second and then they put the Democrats second. That's why she won. Um, but still, it's a great result. And um and hopefully she'll be able to you know, present herself to the people of Alaska in a uh, favorable way and win in November. Certainly, you know, we, we definitely have to deal with the politics of these states and accept where the ball is at the playing field. We can't expect them to be electing, um, you know, AOC right away. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but um, yeah, good result. And um, but I do I worry about tonight's speech <laughs> rolling back the momentum that the Democrats were gaining. <laughs> uh, but I mean, Harvey seems a little bit more favorable. Maybe if you heard it. No, no, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. I you put it in that kind. I I definitely I definitely see what you mean, kind of thing. <laughs> Let me yeah. make that clear. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, I think they really, you know, because what it sounds like he's doing is is really, uh, you know, again, why is he? I mean, on the one hand, I think he's saying you have to vote for us because the MAGAs are in the Republicans, and then he's trying to salvage the Republican Party. All of that seems just so politically, I mean, ill. Just a yeah. bad strategy, bad tactics. So I don't know. Let's do. There are some congressional, generic congressional polls out, Professor K, mm -hmm. that, for example, today, the Wall Street Journal shows the Democrats winning a generic congressional vote by three points. It shows Biden beating Trump by six. Yesterday, the Economist came out with a poll showing the generic congressional vote would be Democrats up by eight. Uh, Politico shows Democrats up by five. This is yesterday. Quinnipiac up by four in the congressional uh, generic polls. There are structural issues where Republicans uh when even if the Democrats are up by two percent, how many on a generic poll nationwide? How if if the Democrats are leading four percent, five percent? About two or three usually. Uh, what, what do you need? What do you need to? For the, what do the Democrats need to be up nationwide to keep the House? Um, well, again, it depends on which which portions of the electorate are sort of driven. But, you know, usually you need more than two or three percentage points um, for the Democrats to. And it's not just gerrymandering. It's also just the way that um, the Democratic uh, constituencies really do tend to be packed together because they're in population centers. So the, the fact of the demographics, uh, even if things aren't gerrymandered, uh, do tend to. Right. Um, work against the, the do those generic do those congressional generic polls take into account that democrats tend to be no. clustered no. so it's no, just no. a native it's a popular you need, vote it's assumed right now with the gerrymandering between two has to be better than two or three percentage points and at two or three it'll be a real toss-up and then um yeah so about like that okay we're going to wrap it up what are you reading professor harvey jk what are you reading well i actually was in the strand bookstore the other day and I actually picked up a book I read some years ago about, I was going to sound weird, about the New Deal. And I, one of the reasons I did is I, I liked the argument, but I lost the book some time ago. I also picked up a book. I was mentioning to you when we were having lunch, my admiration for the writer Norman Corwin, the great radio writer and producer. And I found it at the Strand, a really clean copy of his one of his two great plays this one on a note of triumph which was the i showed in fact i showed it to you when we were sitting there um it's the radio play that he wrote entirely in verse i i believe um for ve day so i i've been on the trip home i was doing that but i just picked up a book i'm hoping to start very soon um by this fellow uh purdy p-u-r-d-y on democracy basically so i'll i'll have a look at that too i mean lots of stuff i've got i, I was really fascinated by the fact that books still interested me when I was in the Strand. Great. 
And what are you reading, Alan? I, again, I, I punt. I've been too busy. I read, I read weather reports right now. And uh, yeah, I um, just a lot of articles and a lot of uh, writing about you know political strategy and such. So I'm not really reading any books right now. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, just uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going backwards intellectually, David. And what are you feeling about the midterms? Well, I mean, until the speech, I thought pretty good. I mean, I was always worried when Biden opens his mouth or when the Democratic leadership takes control of the messaging. Uh, but I do think, um, again, obviously the, the Roe decision, uh, you know, that should be able. And also inflation going down. That's very good for the Democrats. And then, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I've heard that makes sense for this these midterms is the reason that presidential parties tend to get punished is because they're seen as or they can be portrayed as overreaching. The paradox right now is it is the Republican Party, the party that is out of power, that has overreached. They've overreached with the with the Dobbs decision. They've overreached by all of the shenanigans they're playing around elections and democracy. So that can play well for the Democrats. So, you know, hopefully uh, we can. Um, I do. Have I, have I given you the whole spiel about I think if the midterms go poorly, I don't think Biden will be running again if they don't hold on to yeah. the House for a number of reasons, but not the least of which they will start hearings on his family. And they'll start, you know, ridiculous impeachment stuff. But I do think that that will be very damaging to him. And so I think that's one of the reasons his heart is in this so much. I'm not sure, though, he, him taking a lead on this is really what's going to produce the victory we'd want to see happen. Well, here's a clip. Free election. Of some, and they're working I right now. He was being heckled. As I speak in state after state. Somebody was screaming F Joe Biden. Side elections in America. Did you hear that? The partisans and cronies. I didn't I didn't hear the I didn't hear the language. Supposedly there was a heckler screaming itself. F Joe Biden. MAGA force Man, Jill Biden, she can be nasty. Um do you <laughs> the dark branding stuff, David? They see their MAGA failure to stop a peaceful transfer I'm sorry? of power. Have you followed the dark branding meme? As preparation. Uh not really. I've seen the images. What is that about? Sort of like a revival of the onions, sort of 2009, 2010, Joe Biden. Yeah. Be him nasty. Just, you know, that, that, that he's a superhero, that it's sort of a front that he's as incompetent that he is and, and uh, gets those, those shades on, the mirror shades on and jumps in his Corvette and solves all our problems. You've seen the sketch Robert Smigel wrote for SNL with uh, Phil Hartman playing Reagan, where he- Oh yeah, yeah, well, he's the mastermind. Yeah, he, he's this that doddering brain. old yeah. fool, and then the doors close, and <laughs> yeah, he's so, a genius. Uh, people should check that out if they haven't seen it. Yes, yeah. Robert Smigel wrote that for uh, SNL. Thank you, Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. And Alan Minsky and Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on Democracy. Thank you both. Great, Thank you, David. Great conversation. Thank you. Let's go to Mexico. Rodrigo, you get the last word. And I'm going to turn the air on. Oh, Rodrigo, you get the last Are we on a seven-second delay? No, I was listening to the show. Oh, well, there's your first mistake. So I have some breaking news for you. Okay. A second grader in Arizona brought two guns and ammunition to school and somehow got in trouble for it. Imagine that. A second grader. A second grader, yes. 
Wow. U.S. life expectancy has dropped 6.6 years in the last two years, the lowest since 1996. I told you before that lips of TikTok and Matt Walsh were targeting Boston Children's Hospital with lies about providing mastectomies to underage girls, and now they've had bomb threats. Bomb threats, yes. Yep. Now claiming the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago looking for Hillary's emails. Ben Paris, the chair of Florida's Seminole County Republican Party, was convicted of illegally setting up a fake progressive candidate, his cousin, to siphon votes from Democrats in the 2020 election. Meanwhile, Laura Loomer has proclaimed herself the winner of a congressional election where she lost to a regular Republican. Peltola beats Pelin in Alaska, who is pro-choice and also pro-drilling. Pro-what? Pro, pro, I'm sorry, pro-what? Pro-choice and pro-drilling. Pro-drilling, yes. It turns out that in 2019, Trump asked the CIA for a list of CIA assets, they started dying in 2020, and I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but I bring it up because when more people find out about this, the Party of National Security that has already turned on the FBI will probably turn on the CIA too. Right. An ex-YPD ex-cop was given 10 years in prison because, as, as it turns out, the guy who used the U.S. flag to attack cops during January 6th was a retired cop. Tom Webster. Nearly one-third of all house sales last year went to people who had no intention of living in them, between landlords, aspiring Airbnb tycoons, and other types of investors. Uh, Someone mentioned this, but Bernie said this to the UK in solidarity with striking workers. People who are worth tens and tens of billions of dollars are every day fighting hard to cross the working class so they can have a few billion more. Shame on them. End quote. Kefals was in Northern Ireland where someone tried to swat her again. A reminder for those who haven't heard it this year that the entire world celebrates Labor Day on May 1st to commemorate the high market massacre, which happened in Chicago on May 4th, 1886, and only the United States and Canada celebrated on the first Monday of September. The high market affair or riot, depending on who you ask, started as a peaceful demonstration to support the eight-hour day workday and ended with a dynamite bomb. Did everyone know the eight-hour day was a labor victory? I wanted to explain the perverse incentives behind copyright claims on YouTube, but I don't want to get you in trouble, so ask me this weekend. Okay. Please remember, the next time the historic floods will be closer to you than Pakistan, and instead of doing theory today, I want to recommend to everyone wondering why the left is so fragmented the Mark Fisher essay Exiting the Vampire Caster. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. Good job. Here is uh, former senior advisor. President to, Trump uh, poured out his heart, hang his on. soul. His Here, Stephen Miller. Here's his uh, reaction to uh, President Biden's speech tonight. 
President Trump poured out his heart, his soul, his spirit every day to build a better America for everyone in this country, a safer, more prosperous America. While Democrats in the deep state launched an illegal operation to take him out that is now in its sixth year. President Biden tonight gave the speech of a dictator in the style of a dictator, in the visual of a dictator, using the words of a dictator. This was his enemies of the state speech. And like every other radical Marxist tyrant, he accused his opponents of being fascist while he engages in repressive authoritarian behavior. President- Amazing. So he's calling Biden a Marxist and a fascist. It can't be both, Stephen Miller. You're the fascist. Let, let Trump be the Marxist. Okay, this is Molly Hemingway, the editor-in-chief of The Federalist. This is what she said of the speech. President Trump gave a speech at Mount Rushmore where he did condemn political violence and also praised Mm -hmm. our country and spoke about the higher good that we all should aspire to. And the corporate media called that speech dark and divisive. This speech is easily the most disgraceful speech from a president in recent decades. It is horrifying how he is issuing a call to war against every single American who didn't vote for him. President Trump gave a speech at Mount Rushmore. That's Fox News, Molly Hemingway, the Federalist's editor-in-chief. That's their reaction to the president's speech tonight. Uh, Interesting. I'm David Feldman. I will see everybody at Office Hours and Hours. Every Friday at 8 p.m. we do Office Hours and Hours. And on the first Friday of every month, it's Office Hours and Hours and Hours and Hours. It goes for days, sort of. So if you're in our chat room, our virtual studio audience, sign up, teach a class, run a conversation. I look forward to watching it. And if you're listening or watching us right now, go to my website and sign up for office hours. You will meet better people. And while you're over at my website, please sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday and it also has an invitation for office hours. By the way, if you don't have an invitation for office hours, if you didn't come in the mail, go to my website, hit office hours It'll take you right in Friday nights at 8 p.m. Today's show is put together by Grace Jackson, Professor Jonathan Bick, Hannah Feldman, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and of course, Dan Frankenberger. Nothing gets done without Dan Frankenberger. Thank you, Rodrigo. Great job. I like you giving me news bits, like an update. I I like that. Uh, and uh, thank you to everybody who sat in our virtual studio audience tonight. Please come back, join the conversation. Thank you to our guests tonight. They were Professor Ben Burgess, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Ethan Hershenfeld, Emil Guillermo, Dan Frankenberger, our quiz master, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, 
the professors in Marianne, Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, in Spain, Cooking Forest, Driving Me Insane in Spain, and of course, Alan Minsky and Professor Harvey J.K. Sign up for my newsletter. I got to find some music to go out on. Give me a second. There we go. I'm going to pick something that doesn't get as dinged by YouTube and see if this helps. I just wonder if... Uh... Here we go. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. <laughs> He's groovy like a movie that you watched one time when you were kinda high. But now you can remember exactly why you liked it, but you did. He's charming, it's alarming. How charming he is when he's farming And just like that movie that we watched when we were stoned We like him and we don't know why He's hilarious And most of his head is hairyless And like the mean girl from school Who treated you cruel You like him And you don't know why You like him And you don't know why You like him And you 